Welcome to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline in game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. Whoa, coming in hot. Yep. The big... Galloping. The big 1-6, right? Mm-hmm. Is episode 16? Pretty sure? Yes, it is. 16. Today, Michael, because you have chosen to read it, you know, we, we bounce back and forth. If this is your first episode of the show, you might not know... I, well, A, you should go back and listen to, like, the 40 hours of, of podcasts <laughs> in previous episodes. The but, continuity uh, is really important. The, All the of con- our characters are really developed now. and Yeah, exactly. It's like, you, you won't understand, you know, the the season six David Spade character <laughs> if you don't check out season one's David Spade characters, you know? <laughs> They're different. Different kinds of guys. They right, definitely right, don't right. sound the same and act the same and have the same opinions about everything. Right, right. One's Joe Joe Dirt Jr. and the other's Joe Dirt the Fifth. Yeah. Multiple Joe Dirts. <laughs> Multiple Joe Dirt theory. Um, <laughs> I, in the way that there would be, like, bigger Luke. Yes. <laughs> There's b- bigger Joe Dirt. Um, all right. We're, you can tell it's early in the morning uh, when we're recording this, but this is, um, like I said, if, you, if you're not familiar with the show, we do an older book, kind of a classic of the field, or a book that gets treated as a classic of the field, and then we do a newer thing. Last episode, we did um, Chris Paul's Wordplay, which is kind of in the middle, actually. Maybe an underread book in the field, I think, probably is, is what we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you should check that book out, but today, we are doing... A big book, a capital capital B book, a book, uh, which is ironically rather small. You know what it is? It's it's got it has a um, it's got a tight frame. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like it's like a little box. Yeah, and it's ready to, to make make it happen. It's it's kind of austere on the front. It's like oh, there's maybe a like a it microchip is, we, here. I was going to say, can we talk about actually the cover? I really like the cover of this book. Can because... you say what the book is, Michael? Uh, I was hoping people would be able to guess based on the covers of books that they liked. Um, oh, okay. Okay, we'll go ahead and walk through it then. Yeah, yeah, That's no, a good okay. point. Okay, so uh, the book is... The cover is really interesting because it's got kind of this gold sheen, mm-hmm. right? It's got kind of this metallic sheen to it. And we have... Uh, in It's a black field, and then in uh, above that, there is a kind of uh, procedurally generated digital maze uh, in green and it's like a very cool like 80s 90s metallic green and then over that kind of backlit in in this uh very 90s uh digital technology kind of yellow halo effect uh is the word cybertext which is the title and then you can if you squint you can read that it was written by Espen J Arseth uh because for some reason, the actual name of the author is the hardest thing to read on the cover. Uh, but other than that, I actually really like this design because it's got like a little bit of character to it. Well, it's also got a uh, it's got a subtitle. Oh, that's right. You can barely read that as well. It's also perspective, hard to read. Perspectives on ergodic literature. Perspectives on ergodic literature. It's you know we'll get we'll get into that if you don't know what that word means. <laughs> that's yeah. not your fault. <laughs> um, We'll get there, you know. Maybe I can. I'll, I'll give the. I'll give a little thing here. So you know, Espen Arseth, um is uh, at IT University of Copenhagen. Uh, has been there, I think, for a fairly long time. This book came out in 1997 and was his doctoral dissertation that got turned into a book. Um, 
is the editor for Game Studies, which is kind of the, you know, one of the flagship journals for the field of game studies. Um, and when this book came out in 1997, much like Hamlin on the Holodeck that we listened to, or, or well, you listened to, we talked about <laughs> and read, um, you know, last year, I guess, this is another big pillar of the field. It kind of came out and really helped, as far as I know, people who were there, free to correct me, but really helped usher in a distinct field of game studies and kind of provided a theoretical backing for some of that. I think what you, you probably have noticed, if you're not a game studies academic and you're listening to this, that when we talk about books that are kind of formative for the field, it's really because they are, or, or part of the reason why they're formative for the field is that they are theoretical pillars that you can grab onto and build other things on top of. So they're kind of big, broad investigations of like, what are games? What's a type of game? Um, what is What are the things that make games unique? And ergodicity, you're going to hear me stumble over this a whole lot during this episode, ergodicity and the kind of um, analysis that Arsif does about that and about games and about MUDs and hypertext and all this kind of stuff in this book, um, that becomes a big pillar of game studies going into the early 2000s. Do you think that is fair, Michael? Yeah, no, I would would say this is fair. Um, I think I probably first encountered this text... In undergrad, it would have been in undergrad. I've talked about this before in earlier episodes, but uh, I came in to undergrad pretty reasonably certain I was going to do a, a English literature like major. Um, but I was always interested in games, and so of course something called cybertext I would have been super interested in because that seems to uh, kind of meld the the two sides of that interest right they those coming out of the english background they can feel very very distinct and so this idea of cybertext i was like oh that's really cool so i believe i first read this and i i use the word read very loosely there uh when i was an undergrad because i did not really care for it at all um and like beyond a certain point did not really even know what it was trying to do um so this time I, I've gotten a much better sense of where this book is sitting. Uh, but I know that like I read this because it was being talked about. If mm-hmm. it, along with Hamlet on the Hollow Deck, which I think is actually the one that's friendlier to actual like lit studies people, um, people like would always talk about cybertext as kind of this alternative model. Yeah, and it is, I think. I think calling it a model is both intended, you know, I think that's the intended output is like, here's, here's a new method or mode of engaging with games. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also appropriate because I don't know, you know, before we're not getting into it quite yet, but I don't know if I think any individual reading in this book is necessarily important um, because all of those readings kind of flow toward a big kind of mono story about what, makes games interesting or unique. Um, so I, I don't say that to like be like, well, the readings aren't good. That's not really what I mean, but I just mean that, you know, every reading it seems very, very sharp and moving toward a point um, mm-hmm. in a very tactical way. It, it also seems that I don't think your experience is incorrect or uncommon. This is a book, <laughs> my, my, my impression of this book is some people read it and they think that it is the key to games, right? It, it like it unlocks a door for them that nothing else does and they really get attached to it 
you know, and I've met quite a lot of game studies academics where that's the case. Not so much now, uh, you know, not so much in 2019, but certainly, you know, six, seven years ago when I was really um, exploring the field of game studies, I think this book got talked about a whole lot more then. Um, or on the other side, I think there are people like you who read it and they're like, this is insufficient for what I am looking for, or this mm -hmm. method doesn't do the thing that I think is interesting about games. And so then therefore they just kind of like drop it. I don't think there are very many people on earth who are lukewarm on this book <laughs> for reasons we will get into, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, is that your sort of your total history with it? I mean, I assume you have read it before this point also. Yeah, I've read it. I don't think I've ever read this book super closely in the sense of like read it, uh, line by line, taking notes on it in this sense. I must have read it when I was working on my master's thesis. Um, but I don't know that I, I, I have, I'll just, I, by that, I mean, I haven't read it in a classroom setting and I haven't mm -hmm. read it to write on it extensively. And so I, I think I have quote unquote read the book before in the sense that I've probably read the introduction and a couple chapters. I believe I looked over it again when I was teaching like a week on adventure games in my game history course that I used to teach that I taught for like three years. And I, um, I ultimately did not end up assigning this book yeah, <laughs> for various reasons, um, uh, mostly because it, it is not historical. Um, <laughs> it is more analytical, right? But, yeah. Yeah. But now I have read the book line by line, taking mm -hmm. notes on it. Yep. Wow. And this book, <clears throat> this book. So I guess to flag things up front, uh, I don't know exactly how, like what the vibe of this podcast is going to be by by the end, right? But for me, at least, it, if you it's go like back a couple... It's not like you're about to get in a fist fight. You're like, look, I, I don't know what the vibes are here. I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know. Vibe check, guys. So a couple episodes ago, um, we read uh, a book, um, Playing With Feelings, uh, by Aubrey Annable. And the way that Cameron put it uh, in that episode was that that book, like, came for him in, in a methodological way as a scholar. Um, and so his reactions to it were, and his sort of thoughts on it were very much colored by that. Um, this is that book for me, right? This is the book that comes at me. Uh, but, and I don't think this is necessarily your experience with Annabelle Cameron. It comes at me in a really weird way, um, where, and I think I have the advantage of existing, you know, some decade and change after it was published and having sort of all of the places the field has gone at my disposal. Um, it comes at me and sort of disparages literary theory pretty consistently and universally. Uh, and at the same time is preoccupied with questions and asks really interesting things at certain points that like things that I am very genuinely into, right? It, it brings these points up um, without seeming to realize that those things are part of literary theory. Mm. Does that make sense? It, it does. Right. Um, it, it's like, I mean, one of the ways that I put it is that um, this book is kind of like constantly trying to low key tell me that I'm wrong and kind of maybe stupid for being an English literary studies person. Um, but then it also is trying to like get me involved by, I don't know, talking about open works and Stanley Fish and Umberto Eco and all this stuff and sort of 
picking up all of these lines of literary criticism and literary theory that like I've been interested in for as long as I've been interested in literature um, and sort of using them and then also constantly being like, and all of these are inadequate, but I'm going to use all of them in, in my argument for what ergodic literature is doing. Yeah, the vibe kind of across the board here, um, in, we keep saying vibe, <laughs> the, uh, the feeling or the argument against literary theory here, I think, that to be as charitable as possible uh, uh, to the thing, is that these arguments, if these arguments are true, then literary theory doesn't go far enough. And so then, therefore, we have to generate new methods or be a little bit more specific and analytical when it comes to games, for example, in order to really pay off those theories. Again, that's being as charitable as possible to the argument because it's meant, I mean, you said, it, you know, it kind of treats you as if you might be stupid. Um, I, I think that's fair. I think that, that people have strong reactions to this book, and they're not unwarranted reactions, but they have strong reactions because there's a tone of this book where it is written in such a way that it seems to be saying quite often, here's an argument. If you believe this, you, you either A, aren't paying attention, B, you are absolutely, you know, blinkered by your methods so you can't understand the thing you're looking at, or C, you're just ignorant. Uh, like, there are multiple places in this book where Arthas like, well, if you believe this about hypertext or if you believe this about adventure games, you're just ignorant of the, the reality of adventure games. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, my way of interpreting my experience here is different. And to be fair, like, to be very fair to Arseth, and this still happens in the year of our Lord 2019, there are a lot of people in many different disciplines that are not centered on game studies, right? They're not game studies people. They are, you know, literary scholars or they are film studies scholars or they're art historians or they're whoever. And they write about games with like just their ideology about games in mind, right? Like the citational apparatus and the way that games work seems very, very far away from like anyone who's actually ever played a game. That does happen, like 100%. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think you respond to those arguments in academic settings or in context by treating those people as if they're idiots. Um, I think you do. I think you just respond to them by being like, "This is not how this happens." There's a tone to how the, those how I think those arguments should work, and I, I Arseth takes a different route. I think we could say. Well, so with that out of the way, um, how do we want to talk about this? Because it is it's a very brief book. It's like two hundred pages, mm -hmm. uh, but it can also be pretty involved. Let's just go for it, my guy. Okay. Let's just, let's just make it happen. There are some chapters that are very strange, and, and we will talk about them at the time, but there are chapters that are, like, long and involved and pretty specific, and there are chapters that seem to just be like, wouldn't it be good if we thought about games like this? Yeah. And and there's not a lot of, you know, room to, to argue or even really, like, flesh it out more than what's there. So I think we just kind of play it by ear. Uh, unlike, you know, for, for listeners of the past few episodes, you know, generally we've been reading some books occasionally that have like a big theory chunk and a big case studies chunk this is really not that kind of book it has a theory there i mean there are chapters that are more broad theory capital t theory oriented but every chapter is kind of its own thing and it's and it's its own thing to the extent that in the conclusion of the book he's like yeah um these are all kind of a little bit different but i didn't want to kind of, i didn't want to smooth over the differences because hopefully they're all readable by themselves so like sorry that's how it goes and uh, I at least appreciated that conclusion, being like, yeah. 
yeah, I didn't I didn't make some art, you know, some forced connection between all these things because some of them are different. So mm-hmm. if the, if as we're talking about it, if it feels a little disjointed, that's not on you and it's not on us. That's just the way the book works. What's ergodic literature, Michael? What is ergodic literature? Well, um, ergodic literature is literature that requires non-trivial effort on the part of the reader in order to effectuate. Is it really just to effectuate? Yep. That's just to do whatever it is that literature does. Uh, okay, so so the, I guess the two kind of big keywords here that, that you can walk us through as a literary scholar, Michael, mm-hmm. um, are th- this first one, ergodicity, e- E-R-G-O-D-I-C, if you're following along at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's ergodicity, ergodic literature, and then there's cybertext, which is like the title of the book and a key term but cybertext is related to ergodicity it's it's a kind of a kind of a closed loop can can mm-hmm. you walk us through these words okay so um <clears throat> we'll start with cybertext because that's the title and um actually i think if you understand what he means by cybertext first then uh, ergodic makes more sense so cybertext for arseth um is and this is the thing to say he he says it very very quickly it's like in the first paragraph it is not limited to uh computer driven or electronic or digital texts uh because as he says this would be arbitrary and unhistorical this is a thing that he loves to say about things that they're arbitrary and unhistorical we'll we'll come back to this um but uh basically he says uh you know he he is open to the idea and in fact, like admits that there are texts that predate sort of uh, computers, essentially, that fit what he is interested in in cybertexts. So one of the examples he gives is uh, the I Ching, which is a sort of method of randomly drawing uh, part. It's a old Chinese kind of divinatory uh, fortune telling uh, set of cards. Um, that you use to kind of assemble, like, think of it as uh, a self-assembling kind of, like, horoscope or something like reading tarot cards, uh, bringing up little bits of texts that, uh, you are supposed to kind of organize into a whole as a reader. Um. Yeah. So you kind of write, you, you throw some sticks, which are kind of like dice, um, and they tell you, they organize how you're supposed to read this kind of divination, so... Um, there's like all kinds of, lots of people in game studies write about the I Ching, but, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, the idea behind cybertext then is that it's focusing on the mechanical organization of the text. And that's a direct quote from Arseth. So Mm -hmm. the cybertext is some, whatever it is about the cybertext, it in some way, uh, folds back in on itself, uh, not just to point at the fact that it's a text, but, uh, to the fact that it is assembled, or in some way um, acted upon by an outside user, and that affects how it is read, understood, or felt. Um, so the other, the sort of like second half of the mechanical organization, right, is that it posits that the intricacies of the medium are integral for the literary exchange. So that's what a cybertext is. Mm-hmm. Now, what is ergodic literature? Uh, he pulls this from two Greek words, um, ergon and hodos, which mean work and path. Uh, so the ergodic literature 
is literature that requires non-trivial effort, as he puts it, uh, to allow the reader to traverse the text. So this does not mean, as he will be very, very emphatic about, like, the book is really hard in the same way that, I don't know, like, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses is really hard and if you want or like Infinite Jest is really hard and if you want to read Infinite Jest or Ulysses you kind of have to really set your mind to it um the the work and the path are the key because it's about the way that the non-trivial effort is associated with kind of the reader's interference assembling the text in the first place mm-hmm. um so the other thing that happens is that as you are working through the ergodic text, you are aware that this is not the only possible configuration. You you know, part of your reading experience is knowing that there was another path you could have gone down that might have had a different result, that you might be, in, in like the contemporary video game idiom, missing out on content. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and not 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 just that you're missing out on content, but that you're closing off content to yourself, right? So it's not right. just that you're not seeing it, right? In the sense of like you're, I don't know, reading a book and you're skipping pages or something, right? That because of a choice you made to go left here, you won't go right, and you won't see what happens to the right. So, for example, you know, if you're playing The Witcher Three and you decide to, I, I don't know, support the the village. Uh, instead of the monster with a, with a heart of gold, and you slay that monster, well, you'll never know what happened at the end of the monster's quest line. Right. Something like that. So, that is what uh, Ergotic is. And this links to him with the concept of Aporia, uh, which he draws kind of both from Greek rhetoric and from post-structuralist theory. Mm-hmm. Um... <laughs> That was a very loaded uh, noise of agreement you just made, Cameron. Do you have something to say about Aporia? Uh, so, so people people who have read a lot of Derrida mm-hmm. <laughs> might know about uh, Aporia's right. Aporia as a, a gap or an incommensurability. Um, you know, I don't know if it's the most interesting version of that. I I find Leotard's Differant to be more interesting. <laughs> that, that's my literary theory voice or my my post structuralist theory voice, but. Um, uh, but, but what's interesting to me, right, is that he's very, very interested in in um, aporias, aporias, uh, because mm-hmm. they they demonstrate a gap or or a lack. You can't, well, you run into a wall, then you cannot transcend that wall, and you've got to make some choices and things like that. So if I I go down the left pathway, I am fundamentally not making connections that might take me down the right pathway to mm-hmm. a different set of encounters or a different set of narrative beats or blah 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 or whatever, right? Um, what is interesting to me, and this has always been interesting in, in the Derridian sense or any of the other post-structuralists, is that aporia has a equivalent term called euporia. Um, if <laughs> a, aporia is a gap, then euporia is an abundance, is, is, is an overdevelopment, a, an, an excess. And I think that the difference between these two terms really kind of sets... Um, sets a standard for how you think about basically everything else in this book because consistently and and michael you know you've probably scrolled through my notes you can see this consistently reading this book i just thought well yeah i guess this argument whatever the argument is i guess this is true if this is the only way you can think about this but 
if you think about reading or interaction or whatever in any other way, other than this very fine-grained reading that he has produced, then you end up with an abundance, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, right, and, and this is something I wrote later on in the book, but this is, I think, an appropriate place to say it. So, like you were saying, he makes a distinction with ergodicity um, around it's difficult, but not in the way that, that reading Ulysses is difficult, right? It's not you got to steal yourself and you got to read a lot of hard words and the grammar is going to be difficult, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult in a different way because you're closing off pathways. But to me, right, and he obviously is responding to me in this book. There's a whole section in this first chapter where he's like, when I present on this, here are the common arguments that come up against me. Here's why they're wrong. <laughs> and one of those argument, one of those arguments that he's responding to is certainly this one, although I'm not quite sure, you know, what his response looks like, um, even after reading the section. But all to say, when I read a book, any book, and I come to an interpretation of what occurred in that book, you know, is this book about? So, for example, if we read The Road. There's a way of reading The Road, and I've taught The Road a bunch of times. You can read it as a hopeful book about the potentiality for humanity, or Mm -hmm. you can read it as a book that's about the horror of reproducing society as it stands. And the fact that the end of the world does not, in fact, end anything uh, in the system of violence and oppression that that continues, or, you know, that, that subtends our world and would continue after the end of the world. You, you can do that. And you might be able to acknowledge that both of those are true, but you have to make a claim. You know, you have to, to believe in one of those over the other one. I'm not sure that you can just be like, well, the book, it's good. Books are wonderful. They have many meanings, right? But, you, but when you are coming to the conclusion about what you think a work is doing, you are cutting off other potential ways of engaging with that book. Mm-hmm. That to me seems to be <laughs> like a significant thing here. That, that that seems to suggest both that there is a, a a euphoria here, an extremity of abundance of potential positions you could land in with a book, and it also seems to suggest that um, ergodicity in the act of cutting off is not really cutting off all that much. When I make a choice about going left or going right, I still have play experience potential of going right and thinking about the rightward choice Mm -hmm. like does that make sense yes no i I Um, could just be like i don't know if this is like an argument that doesn't make sense to anyone else but to me it seems like this is infinitely more complicated it's not to say he's wrong but infinitely more complicated than how he's analytically laying it out yeah so um i mean this is this is honestly it's a problem with some with part of this book uh again it, admittedly right the book is coming for me um but uh he is so what what you just described cameron is is a fairly i think good and accessible uh rundown of like reader response criticism yeah for sure um which is uh for those who uh are listening i might have talked about this in another episode but reader response criticism is a form of criticism that uh comes about sort of at the same time as post-structuralism in literary theory so the 70s and 80s um and these are people like i've already mentioned them uh stanley fish and umberto echo um are kind of the big ones uh critics whose uh real object of study is not so much 
um, the meanings produced by texts, although that is true, right? They, they do offer interpretations of texts, um, but they are interested in the ways that texts are organized so as to invite certain readings. So the, the, big, the big claim that Stanley Fish makes, for example, is that in um, Milton's Paradise Lost, is that uh, you can, so Paradise Lost is a retelling of uh, the Garden of Eden story, essentially. Um, and you can read that and be very, very sympathetic to Satan, who is kind of the main character and for at least part of it feels like the protagonist. Um, Satan is very sort of like heroic. He's uh, cool and dynamic. Um, and all the other characters are just like listening to what God has to say, essentially. Um, and so the the for centuries since that poem was published, people have been sort of unsettled by the fact that, like, what is ostensibly a religious poem, like, the most interesting character is the villain, is this devil. Um, Stanley Fish says that's the point, right? Like, the, the poem is set up in such a way to get you to empathize with Satan so that you must, by the end of the poem, reject him. Right, there is a very sort of like real um, exchange that Fish is positing um, between the text and the reader in that way. That like you have to steal yourself by the end of this poem to be like, I am going to abjure this character even though he has been like aesthetically very pleasing for me. Um, and like that's like that's sort of a version of of what he is talking about i think with ergodicity but arseth would not say that it is ergodicity because there is nothing about like my decision as a reader that i don't know makes the actual text of the story change mm -hmm. and i think that's that's valid right but it also like just completely he he has a tendency to just completely simplify what literary theory has actually done in this regard um he says that uh you know, there's this um, recurring language that gets used by um, Jorge Luis Borges and Umberto Eco of of books in labyrinths and mazes, mm -hmm. and books show, books get talked about in literary studies as mazes, things that you have to navigate. So uh, this poem that you have to read, and it's going to try to mislead you by giving you this character who's really, really magnetic and attractive, but you're not really supposed to like him. You're supposed to reject him by the end of the poem. Or it's supposed to be kind of game-like. So if it's, um, you know, Joyce's Ulysses, it's about noticing all of the different genres he's playing with and all of the little jokes he's making in the text uh, and using those to kind of, like, find your way through a very difficult work. Um, these get talked about as mazes and games. And Arseth basically says they shouldn't be. Um, that is to say, or rather, like, we as literary theorists should understand that we're being metaphorical when we say this. And a cybertext is going to be a literal labyrinth, or it can literalize the labyrinth in a way that um, uh, traditional literature cannot. Yeah. Uh, he, he kind of accuses everyone of mistaking the map for the territory, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of um, mistaking the way that we talk about it and the way that we think about it in, in this kind of metaphorical sense for being the reality of how it is. But then you got to think about like House of Leaves, <laughs> or or something, right? Um, yeah, I don't. I guess I don't have a. I I wish that there were more kind of mechanical explanation here. 
mm-hmm. um, of of why one thing and not the other. Because again, you know, we get something later that's like database logic, basically, right? We we, we end up talking about that. So so um, when you are playing certain games, uh, certain text adventure games, right? You are constantly referring to this database that is the world and bringing out pieces of it selectively moment by moment. Um, And sometimes those happen correctly and sometimes they happen incorrectly and all kinds of stuff like that. When I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about what he's saying here about kind of the book is universalizable in that you can fully get access to it, right? You can read all Mm -hmm. the words and you can read them in order. Uh, whereas you're fundamentally in ergodicity, you're making choices that preclude other choices or, or get rid of other choices. But in, I, in in a game space, I mean, I think that you can master wholly the a game in the way that full database of the game in the way that you can master a book. Right. Like I don't like I, game FAQs, my man. Like <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like. Uh, I don't. I'm I'm literally speechless with the the ways that I think that that this doesn't make very much sense to me. That games are complete objects, and the fact that you can reinteract with them in the same way that I can reinteract with Ulysses, it doesn't change the shape of the thing. It is finite, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe when we get to muds, that's not true because of increased human experience or the increased human element. I think maybe I buy that argument a little bit more, but. Um, for for a book that in the first chapter is trying to draw bright lines, I don't think that the line is very bright. I don't yeah. really understand what fits in and what does not fit in. It it really isn't. Um, and so just a couple of other things, a couple other quotes. I think I want to read here. This is from page fourteen. I wish to challenge the recurrent practice of applying the theories of literary criticism to a new empirical field, seemingly without any reassessment of the terms and concepts evolved. So again, this is like, you know, I like I need to take this thing that all of these literary theorists are using metaphorically, game, labyrinth, and so on, and I need to show how cybertext um, does not... This is, this is like one of the weird tensions, is that a lot of literary theorists will say that the types of texts that Arseth calls cybertexts um, incarnate or like make manifest... Um, a lot of these sort of abstract or metaphorical ways of thinking about or talking about textual experience, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which he he agrees with until he doesn't. Right? He will say that like he he uses on the one hand um, the tendency of literary critics to say like oh books are like labyrinths, um, but then he's like also saying that like well they shouldn't actually be saying that they should understand that. Eh. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. This is always a thing with this. Um, So anyway, he says that uh, we have this uh, new thing that is coming around, right? This new thing that is called cyber, that he's decided to call cybertext, and he doesn't want literary theory to, to get its grubby paws all over it. So he proposes a division, um, a, a study of meaning and a study of media and the study of meaning would be textology and the study of media would be textonomy um and what he is doing is closer to textonomy than to textology which is more like traditional literary criticism so traditional literary criticism is only talking about meaning whereas he is talking about uh the media and how the medium i should say and how that influences things the problem with this 
is that he has just made a wholly untenable division between the type of work he is doing and the type of work that literary scholars are doing or have done historically. So not to get again too far into the weeds, but literary studies as we understand it is like um, maybe 150 years old. Um, and prior to sort of the, the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, um, meaning and media like the literary studies uh, didn't exist and you would have people who would like call themselves like scholars or philologists and they were the people who did interpretations of texts but they also did like material histories of how books were produced or they were antiquarians and they looked at um, sort of the material context in which various texts would have been read or where they would have been operant uh, and you know looked at uh precisely what he is trying to get at which is sort of the way that these these what he wants to take as kind of this underlying media form influences the sorts of meanings that are available does that make sense yeah a hundred percent i mean right. you, what we would in media studies right this is what we'd call a medium specific medium specificity debate right or an yeah. argument about medium specificity what what kind of uh, affordances or what kind of capabilities do individual media have and what does that mean for them, right? So what you're sketching now is there's a 150-year history of um, literary scholars with, with a prehistory before that, too, right? Of people mm -hmm. actually paying very close attention to the thing he says they don't care about. Right. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the idea that literary scholars are only interested in sort of, like, texts, like literature with a capital L, like, that's a really recent idea. So when he says that literary scholars are being ahistorical, he is basically only engaging with people who have been writing since, like, 1900 and ignores, like, what is important for me, obviously, right, is this vast sort of pre-modern tradition um, that complicates everything he says in this book. Like, I'll just write up front, like, everything he says in this book is complicated by the ways that people think in the time period that I study. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, there's that. Uh, nevertheless, he says that uh, literary theorists are, and this is a problem of this book, being uh, they're colonizing game studies. They are uh, rushing into what he calls, and this is a direct quote, the virgin territory of hmm. game studies. Hmm. Yeah, um, and that's that's a weird line to take, especially as I said that like. If, if he had a broader historical view, he would see that this is not, like, unowned territory, right? There have been people who have been interested in games and weird types of literature for a long time. Um, and then also, just because this is a line that gets picked up in 2014 during Gamergate, uh, not, I think, specifically from Arseth, but uh, I'm not trying to lay this all at his feet, but we were kind of crappy to Huizinga uh, when we, like, or I think we, we pulled... We, we called out Huizinga on his stuff, right? Uh, so let's just call out, like, this idea that games are in some way new uh, and shouldn't be subject to other types of concerns which are kind of imperialist um, is just something that becomes very, very useful in 2014 when it can be reformatted to say that, like, oh, well, in addition to, like, literary studies trying to colonize this field... Uh, incidentally people who care about like feminism or like race 
or anything like that, gender, sexuality, uh, that becomes its own kind of imperialism when when those things get uh, pushed into games, quote-unquote, from the outside, according to all of these people with really bad opinions. <laughs> yeah, that there's this kind of um, pressure or force or illegitimacy that comes from somewhere else and then lands here, and video games should be blameless. Um, mm-hmm. For, from the things that, that exist there. Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate thing. You know, I think for, for Arseth to, again, not to lay everything at his feet, um, but I think for Arseth there is a, this is a dissertation. A dissertation requires someone to make some very clear boundaries. And I think in his fervor to make very clear boundaries of what he's talking about and what he is, and I, I empathize with this to some degree, right? He ends up making arguments that that don't really make a, a lot of sense, right? Um, both for the reasons you just laid out in a very kind of like pragmatic and and right now political sense, but also in a general way. Um, it is hard for me to think of one of these like capital L literary theory people that a actually is a literary theorist. Um, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part, you know, I'll grant like Stanley Fish and those people, right? But for the most part. Derrida, Dulles and Guattari, Foucault, um, trying to think of other people that show up, Bart, um, mm-hmm. uh, gosh, the, uh, the, the Umberto Echo, sorry, the semiotician guy. Those people mm-hmm. deal in words and they deal in texts and they often talk about books. But, you know, Roland Bart wrote Camera Lucida, which is, you know, the core of a medium specific argument about how photography works, right? That is kind of like required reading for everyone. Derrida, as, as one of the footnotes in fact says, um, it's one of these moves where Arthur, Arthur says like, well, Derrida never talks about medium specificity except when he does. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Derrida has the really great uh, sections of uh, archive fever where he's talking about using email. Um, oh yeah, people should people should absolutely read Derrida on email. Um, it's I love those. like a little short section in in Archive Fever. Um, Dulles and Guattari write extensively about the difference between like the short story as a mode of production uh, versus the novel. Um, so they're talking about literary form um, and the way that those things interact in society. Right, the rhizome is literally built off the idea of a physical book, as well as this kind of like. Um, biological, you know, the rhizomatic idea. So I, I don't think under a, under a sufficient amount of scrutiny, I don't know if this this actually plays out in the way that he says it plays out. Um, which uh, you know, I again I have empathy for because you have to draw strong lines to to say why why something exists this way and why your analytic is useful. But I think in this particular context, it doesn't really serve much use. And I think anyone who's picking this book up to use it, um, you know, hey, there's been 20 years of, of time in between. So, you know, you should be, be attentive to that. But also, even at the time, the claims that are being made, I don't think hold up to the kind of scrutiny that a big theory book in the field. And I don't think he wrote this to be a big theory book in the field. He's just writing a book, right? But the way it's up to it's been taken up by the field i think there should be a little bit of caution in the way that it's cited in the way that the claims are being couched mm-hmm. you know I, th- I think that we, we got to introduce a little bit more complexity into the citational apparatus here 
All right, so we're like 45 minutes in, and we've just finished chapter one. Yep, well, actually, you know what? We've actually made it to about page 22, so not even all the way through chapter one. Um, it's a, Let me read a, a really weird sentence, and I don't read this sentence to dunk on it or anything like that. It's just a very bizarre one. This is the very last sentence of, of, uh, of the, the first of the introduction here. Um, I do not believe... It is possible to avoid the influence from literary theory's ordinary business, but we should at least try to be aware of its strong magnetic field as we approach the wider spaces, W-H-I-T-E-R, white, like the color, wider spaces, the current final frontiers of textuality. What, what does that mean? Uh, what are the wider spaces? Is that like the blank page? Yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> In, in response to uh, literary theory colonizing game studies, he has offered a sort of corrective metaphor, which is that actually people who call themselves game studies people should be the colonists. Right? Like, yeah. this, what I think of here is like, you know, the, the blank spit, like uh, in, in um, Heart of Darkness, um, Marlowe, uh, the, Conrad, the author, has Marlowe, the narrator, at one point, uh, remembering looking at maps of the world when he was younger and noticing, like, the blank spots, right, and wanting to fill them in. Chapter two. <laughs> Go on to chapter two. Uh, so, yes, chapter two, Paradigms and Perspectives. Uh, he begins this by... Uh, sort of basically saying that no literary theory that uh, he is aware of or like sort of any theory uh, has quote expressed the perspective of the text as a material machine a device capable of manipulating itself as well as the reader so this is uh, another one of those things that's like unique about the cybertext part of the the effect of its mechanical organization uh, is that it can be reorganized. Uh, it can reorganize itself, but also, like, the reader uh, will respond to that or, in some cases, may, you know, affect or enact that. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so he uses that as, like, an entree, right, to move into a long discussion of semiotics. Or, or yes. the, And if you're not familiar with semiotics, if, if you're listening to this, a um, whole lot of ways to learn about it yourself. There's, you know... And, and semiotics was a big kind of literary and philosophical and conceptual concern and, and has been for 120 years or something like that. Um, you, so you can learn about semiotics in a million different ways, but generally semiotics is just the study of signs um, mm -hmm. and the study of semiosis or meaning making. Um, so how do we see things in the world and come to understand them to mean stuff in a general sense? And so there was, a, a, you know, several competing um, theories of that it kind of fits into um, structuralism in a general way so the idea that semiotics at its core could explain for example um, how there can be meaning making in different languages right so if everyone can understand or be made to understand or be given the opportunity to understand what a stop sign is then what does that mean for language that you know that's kind of a uh, kind of a fundamental, or if, or if I point to something and I say, over there, everyone looks where my finger is pointing, or, or within a certain cultural tradition um, and within a certain um, communication apparatus of language and culture, uh, we would all look to where I was pointing. So then, therefore, what the hell goes is happening, you know, with human 
signification when we start to see things as important and uh, recognizable. So it's all to say, mm -hmm. big complicated field. <laughs> yes, people people are really uh, interested and worried about it, and you might understand then why. If Arseth sees game studies as a fledgling field, why it might need a theory of semiotics, or it might need a, a unique semiotics to itself. Mm -hmm. um, but then he does. So one of the ways that he tries to make this difference, or rather, like to 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 use games to complicate um, the field of semiotics, is that he says all of uh, them conceive of the textual artifact as quote a syntagmatic chain of signifiers and little else. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and that is not exactly true, let us say, about <laughs> what semiotics does. Uh, so this is the problem with this chapter, right, is is he is trying to argue against semiotics uh in its current form as something that is adequate to talking about what is going on with cyber texts and games and things like that. And at the same time, um, he is kind of straw manning the entire field of semiotics, uh, because he really focuses on the chain of signification, which is a truly right. A, a, a phrase that recurs again and again and again in, in the writings of semioticians. Um, but he literalizes that. Right, he takes the, when when people say the chain of signification, Arseth has this habit of just s assuming that people literally mean chains, like linear um, thinking, uh, which there are semioticians who will use the phrase chain of signification, but what they're meaning is that like there is a whole web of possibilities for meaning making, and the chain is what happens when sort of the cognitive process decides to link up with one rather than the other. In other words, it sounds an awful lot like an ergodic process. <laughs> yeah, uh, Where whereas it's um, automated by like a cultural sublayer in your brain, right? So, so right. the fact that... Um, when I see the stop sign, I, I'm running into a, a, a some cognitive ergodicity, right, where I am implicitly making a choice of recognition or non-recognition, um, mm -hmm. or or I see two different signs, one that says uh, no parking before four, and it says free parking three to seven or something, right? And there's this kind of chain of significance and choice that's happening between me and how what I know about parking and these two different signs and things like that. Um, Choices are being made and meaning is being locked off, but it is not intentional meaning necessarily. That's a very odd example. I don't know why I use that. <laughs> um. So the, the chapter is weird because the whole big first chunk is all about semiotics. And then he uses semiotics as a way of getting to um, questions of time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the linearity of time. And so there's a debate that he's interested in jumping into where literary theorists say that uh, that hypertext, despite being, uh, you know, as a form, kind of bouncing all over a big map that's not necessarily visible, or despite adventure games with their verbs and nouns, kind of bouncing all over locations and creating this kind of, of uh, interior space for the game, that ultimately many literary critics say that those things are produced linearly in time in the same way that a book would be, right? So I could read in a book 
like I'm reading cybertext, I can read sentence to sentence, and I can construct a logical picture of the argument that's being made here. Um, and so he says, and what many people have said about hypertext is that that's not necessarily how it works, right? Um, it is mm -hmm. not necessarily making linear claims uh, moment to moment, and, that, and the exploratory nature of that is what's interesting about it or what, what changes the world. Um, so then then literary, traditional literary critics, he, he says, have said, well, 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 actually, the fact that you are experiencing that in the time of reading means that it is produced as linear, despite maybe it materially not being linear, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that sets up this kind of comparative for him of what interactivity really means, mm -hmm. right? So, so he's using this to draw a line between uh, kind of general theories of interactivity or nonspecific or... or um, maybe non-critical from his perspective theories of interactivity and um the the like good interactivity i guess or mm -hmm. or um something beyond the question of interactivity do you, you think that's fair yeah yeah no i i do think that is true um and he actually comes after like this is one of those weird things where he comes after the the term interactive fiction yes yeah, yeah um so. for being too too ideological um like that is that is what his criticism is is that it's ideological he doesn't really say like what ideology it serves but it's ideological um here's something that's really interesting though uh just to pause for a moment mm -hmm. and go off off track the term interactive fiction was apparently introduced to literary studies this is this is um that's specifically what arseth says in an article, it's a 1984 article by Anthony, uh, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but I think it's Nice or Nice, and Norman Holland. Um, now, he's pretty critical of this article because uh, essentially what Arseth, the reason Arseth does not like the term interactive fiction is that he believes it's essentially marketing. Mm -hmm. um, that's when, when he says it's ideological, like that's what he means, but for some reason he is not like very clear about like trotting out like it's ideological because it is like it is a marketing term that people who have like made these products are trying to use to sell yeah. right like interactivity is a selling point yeah interactivity um, for him allows everyone to get away with a little bit too much right so on 51 yeah. he says this empirical dimension so his analysis makes ergodic works of the adventure game variety stand out from other types of literature and renders the term interactive fiction meaningless in this context so he's trying to use ergodicity and cybertext as a way of saying Interactive fiction lets everyone say whatever the hell they want about anything. But if yeah. we start using this specific term, then we can't. We have to be specific to empirical right. work. But anyway, sorry, you're talking about this article oh. from 1984. Oh, no, actually, I because you brought us to this paragraph, though. Here's here's a great example of how, how he ends these paragraphs or his sections in such a way <laughs> to just, like, be totally disdainful of everyone. <clears throat> there should be this... Be that as it may, interactive fiction is perhaps best understood as a fiction. The fiction of interactivity. Um, so, the point of all this is that um, he does not understand what the interactive and interactive fiction means. At least to literary theory. Mm -hmm. So, the term gets introduced, as he says in this article, by Nice and Holland. Um, do you know who Norman Holland is? Cameron? No, no, I don't. If you if you had to take a guess, what would you say Norman Holland studied? Uh, would it be literature? 
Yes, 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 but the specific field of literature. Oh, I was no, very surprised Michael. to see his name here. Does he study perhaps early modernism and or Shakespeare? Yes. <laughs> Norman Holland is a Shakespearean. Oh, like no. an old like oh, no. Espinosa's critical flaw. <laughs> no. <laughs> he talked um, about the Shakespearean. Yeah. He no, I decided as a Shakespearean. It was just so weird. I did not expect Norman Holland to be the person who introduced interactive fiction to to literary study, apparently. Yeah, but yeah, no, Norman Holland is a Shakespearean. He did um, his he's sort of like of the last generation of sort of like traditional historical critics before uh, theory really took off. So he his best known work is called like the Shakespearean Imagination. And then I think he also did a later book on Shakespeare and psychoanalysis. So to set um, you up here, um, is this going to be a top 10 anime betrayal right now? Are you going to read Norman Holland so hard that it <laughs> undoes this argument? <laughs> well, possibly. So it's just <laughs> interestingly, the, the person he co-wrote uh, this article with, Anthony Nice, was uh, a specialist in German metadrama oh, at cool. Yale. Cool. So I think it's interesting that like two theatrical people are the people who introduce interactive fiction hmm. but anyway i decided because Nor like, I was like norman holland i went back and i read this article um and what they define interactivity and what they mean essentially is the experience of making a choice in the way that the author would and he hmm. so arseth consistently says that interactive implies like both parties are equal right like so what he ends up saying is that like well interactive fiction is not really that interactive because it's all been mapped out for you and you're just following whatever line has been traced mm -hmm. or like you know anything any path that you pursue has to have been written for you right you're not really becoming the author um but that's not really the claim that they make the claim that they are making in that article of interactive fiction is that um it is like the experience of being an author because you are faced with the choice that the story does not have to go only one way right they call it specifically like the author is inviting the reader to collaborate in the experience of being the writer hmm right so this is this is a thing that like they are very clear about and arseth just like does not mention it right he he is more interested in his very specific definition of interactivity than actually understanding what the literary theorists are saying here about what interaction would mean for fiction that so, sounds a lot like uh, ergodicity michael yeah sounds like you're making choices uh, that are yeah. serious and uh and experience defining yeah, weird, huh? Sounds like you're manipulating the object. Yeah, so so what we get here, I guess, is like this kind of distinction being made by Arseth that interactive fiction, like, A, doesn't, is not specific enough. And mm -hmm. B, even, even if we give it, like, the full range of what interactive fiction does, it is not going far enough because it's not responsive to the types of of objects that that Arseth thinks are like really good mm -hmm. you know this is i wrote this somewhere else in my notes but i guess it's fine to say it here too there's a way that that um Arseth kind of disparages disparages postmodernism and disparages post-structuralism or, or has kind of a love-hate relationship I, I get the sense he's reading it all and he's he's having you know there's a discussion that's happening here between him and those texts that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to caricature him in any way, but also he is doing that as a way of like rehabilitating high modernism, like high yes. modernist formalism to be like, 
there is a there's an opportune or an appropriate container and and structure of a game and kind of expanded field of a game that is good and things that don't hit that marker are just woefully underutilizing the the you know the medium of the video game or something like that yeah of the potential for ergodic literature yeah he he makes almost he makes that argument almost very very explicitly in chapter four where he is like very sort of emphatic about the return to high modernism yeah yeah it's Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to be like well what we're really missing is the art theory of 1935 (laughs) <laughs> that's what we needed for games um but yeah you have anything else to 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 say about uh good old chapter two here um well i mean it, it's interesting that he sort of so he, he ends chapter two by basically he pulls in donna haraway um mm-hmm. the cyborg manifesto and he ends up figuring the writing reading as a cyborg activity which is yeah, totally. I agree with that, right? Like, uh, it's this weird mesh of biological and material, like, you know, whatever, non-human agents, um, whether it's the materials we're using to write or the, like, text that is, is being assembled or assembling itself in some way. Um, but uh, then he also says that uh, this is the, it because this sort of new field of cybertext, this is a cyborg field like any communicative field so he's calling back to uh uh weiner's um cybernetic theory Mm -hmm. uh, which is all about sort of communication and society um but also control he says uh it is filled with questions uh like it is dominated by the issue of domination or control the key question in cyborg aesthetics is therefore who or what controls the text um and then ideologically, there are three positions. It could be author control, text control, and reader control. Uh, and in practice, a lot of these things kind of, like a lot of individual texts will blur these. I think it's really interesting for him to pull in this question of dominated and domination and control. And yet at the same time, it is so incredibly non-political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because he, because one of the things is like he doesn't really, he does not like the literary theorists who come in and pull up hypertext fiction and say, oh, this is like the freedom of the reader; they're being liberated from the tyranny of the author, or whatever um, weird, vulgar, new agey thing you want to come up with. And at the same time, um, he is hitting on the precise reasons that these are being that these get brought up right because these texts foreground these issues of domination in a way that supposedly uh older texts have not um that means that i think so the i don't think necessarily the response of like oh this is totally like salutary and liberatory i don't think that's necessarily the right response i agree with him there um but it's weird how he just kind of evacuates that angle Right, by taking the kind of worst response of the ethical question of, like, author-reader relations and, like, domination and communication and control. And because the claims get so weird and wacky, he just does not touch them at all. And he's just like, but yes, totally, things are being dominated here. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, this is still something that happens today, right? That people, you know, for example, read Deleuze and Guattari, and they're like, well, the rhizome, ultimate freedom, they're, you know... 
the ability to speak back to to power and to reconfigure power in in your own way or, or reading Foucault the same way. Um, and I, I really love that he's like, no, formally, this is this has to do with control and and who operates what, but it is not, it does not have a liberatory politics built into it. But then mm-hmm. I think you're pointing to the exact right question. It does have a politics built into it, of some sort, because we are. Like we already know, it's not necessarily liberatory. So then, I, I think that once Arseth does that, I think he does become responsible for saying something about politics, right? Right. Like, yeah. No, I think actually in this specific chapter, he has this other quote, which is something like because he's talking about uh, whether linearity versus nonlinearity, right? The 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 salutary effects are often um, hand, handled handed over to like the the nonlinearity of hypertext. And he, he ends up saying, like, the, it turns out the most political thing about nonlinearity is that it's apolitical. And it's like, all right, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. Is it apolitical or does it have a different politics? You know, right. I don't think it's apolitical um, mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, obviously it is operating on the world in a way. So, and that brings us to chapter three, uh, which is Textonomy, a typology of textual communication. I have nothing to say about this chapter. Um, Nope. And I will say that because it is fascinating and bizarre. Um, He creates basically a five, it's five or six, um, like qualia. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the number. Wait, one, two, three, four, five. No, seven. Yeah, seven. There are basically seven qualia of of um, ergodic literature. You know, mm-hmm. they can. I, I can read them off real quick. They can. Um, there's dynamics, determinability, transiency, perspective, access, linking, and user functions. And when you smash all those together, you get a 576 dimensional field. <laughs> this is such a weird chapter. It's it's bizarre. Also, it's only like ten pages long. It's very short. Mm-hmm. But he says, well, if you if because all of those have qualities to them, right? Or all of those mm-hmm. have like modes to them within the qualia, and uh, yeah, you can map all possible games in that five hundred and seventy six dimensional field. Yep, I, that sounds good to me. I guess if 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 that's like what makes the world go around for you, yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, this chapter is very weird because, uh, he kind of, you would think that maybe he's setting up a method that he's going to re-employ later, but not really. Um, he's just kind of producing this model as a particular possibility, I think, or way of thinking about, um, how we might visually, um, represent how various games or, like, cybertexts relate to each other. Yeah. Um. And yeah. that's kind of it. And it's just sort of like either you think it's useful or you don't. Um, so there's not really so much to argue with, really, um, because like if if this is if you have like something that you want to map on this, then I'm sure it is useful. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing, or like the most relevant thing that happens here that shows up in other chapters is, and I'm making sure I'm correct on this. Is this where he talks about scriptons and textons? Um, yes, no, no, no. He does talk about them. Yeah, so uh, on page 62, he um, comes up with two uh, neologisms that 
are actually probably somewhat helpful. Um, scriptons and textons. So this can be helpful because one of the things that he points out, and he mentioned this in the previous chapter, is that uh, the text cyber texts can have or will have a kind of uh, dual materiality. So if I am playing an interactive fiction game or something, um, there is the words that are appearing on the screen that I am reading, and then there is the code underneath that is storing all of this information and arranging it in certain ways and kind of making the game run. Um, and both of those levels are equally real, right? Um, the, the thing that I am reading is just as much a part of the text as kind of the mechanics underneath that are shuffling around all of the, all of the bits of text. So he comes up with the term script on to talk about um, the, the textual chain or whatever it is that you're talking about um, that is within the code. And then text on is the uh, textual material that is being like rendered for the reader's validation. Um, and I think that actually can be a very helpful distinction to make when you're talking about, uh, you know, how, how code and player experience interact. So there's that. Yeah, and that do come up later in the book. Mm -hmm. All right, Michael, chapter four. <clears throat> chapter four is called No Sense of an Ending, Hypertext Aesthetics. Es Hypertext Aesthetics. Hypertext Aesthetics. Yes. Um, very clever title because he is, uh, of course, referring to a, a seminal work of uh, literary criticism called The Sense of an Ending by Frank Kermode. I've read that book. I it's it's a very Cameron title at the very least. Yep. Um, even if you would possibly disagree with some of the things, some of the conclusions he comes to. Oh, I do. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you really? Yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, this book is all so this book. This chapter is all about hypertext. Uh, it's I guess if we wanted to give a structure to the book, um, I guess maybe the prior three chapters are in some way, weird ways like sort of scope and method or like they're kind of the groundwork and from this point on for a while uh we're working in specific genres that are of interest to Arseth. uh up until we're not <laughs> uh after after a couple of these chapters and then we're back in kind of weird theory chapters and then another case study chapter so that's kind of how this will go but for the next couple chapters we've got um hypertext uh and then adventure games hypertext we've already talked about kind of his opinions on these which is that like they they aren't really as free and interactive as their advocates would like because they're actually scripted um, you can actually control the re what the reader is looking at much more specifically and with much more granularity in a hypertext than you can in any regular like printed text. Um, and he contrasts it with um, Tmesis uh, from Bart, which is the act of basically like skimming or like skipping through a book looking for the parts that are interesting to you. Uh, so that is a like he. Arseth says that, like, so first of all, right, this whole interactive, like, freedom liberatory thing, like, that's out the window because you can't skim a hypertext in the way that you can skim a book. Um, and I don't know. What do you think of that, Cameron? I think you can absolutely do that. You think you can skim a hypertext? Yeah. 
Yeah. You, you're telling me you haven't been met with a wall of hypertext in, in like a Twine game, and you've been yeah. like, all right, all right, I get it, I get it, I get it, boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say that's the optimal way to do it, but that's also not the optimal way to read a book. <laughs> so Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, you're not going to get the most out of it, but same thing with a book. Right, so this is another one of the problems that I have with the way that Arseth kind of draws his his boundaries. Um, he basically says that, like, oh, you can, like, flip to the end of a mystery novel and read who did it, even though the, the author can't stop you from doing that. Um, and it's like, that is true. And at the same time, um, like, if I'm, if I'm reading a Twine game, like, I can open up the page's source code and I can read through and look for whatever information it is that I want, right? There's nothing that's stopping me there. So this bizarre claim that Arseth makes that a a physical regular printed book is actually more nonlinear than a hypertext is just such a weird and I think I think frankly kind of bad faith uh misunderstanding of what literary scholars talk about when they talk about nonlinearity mm-hmm. which is to say that like what is the text supposed to do? Like, are you supposed to read it from the beginning to the end versus, like, does it uh, sort of incorporate um, its own variations? And in fact, like, I would say that's one of the biggest problems uh, Arseth has when he's thinking about, like, literary study or literary theory. Um, Part of what he assumes or, like, presents is naivety uh, on the part of these people like people in my field is really an excitement at uh being able to talk about texts outside of the idea that there is like one linear way to read it or like that there is one story right uh the idea of a text incorporating its own variations is very exciting um but for our Seth, it's just modernism yeah it's just like you should have read all the words to Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to f- figure out what Stephen Daedalus is up to. So, yeah. So, uh, in this chapter, uh, Arseth, after sort of talking about his weird I- hypertext thing, how you can't skim it, um, he says that one of the reasons that, like, literary theory and or, like, quote-unquote, postmodernism um, is really into saying that hypertext realizes this or that liberatory capacity is that they are quote really a normative attack on the limits of of a specific communication technology which is to say printing Mm -hmm. um so he reduces all of like postmodernism and everything it has to say to a reaction against print culture um and then says that hypertext rather than being a kind of uh way of breaking down all of these old grand narratives that that uh postmodernism is is heading is like trying to really sink its teeth into um hypertext is actually just an alternative and he talks about michael joyce's uh hypertext novel afternoon which we've talked about before i think probably in the hamlet on the holodeck episode yeah we really gotta play this game <laughs> yeah i feel like um, i feel like the more we read about it the more i'm like crap i need to like well, really understand what the hell's going on here you want to know something really cool uh i mean maybe your mileage may vary michael joyce wrote a book it's on hypertext and pedagogy really 
Yes. No, I found a copy of it in a used bookstore um, a couple months ago. So that's sitting on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, but I was like, oh, Michael Joyce wrote a book <laughs> on hypertext and pedagogy in like 1992. Yeah, because he seems to be like a theorist practitioner, right? Because they, yeah. cause he co-wrote, it gets cited somewhere in this book, but he co-wrote something with uh, Jay Bolter, right, uh, mm-hmm. about hypertext and how it works. So Yeah, he did. Um so anyway, yeah, so we're talking about Joyce's Afternoon, um, and this is a really interesting thing that happens here. So he positions Afternoon as, uh, it is sort of understood as a postmodern literary artifact, mm-hmm. because it is this hypertext novel. And Arseth's move in this chapter is to say that, like, actually, it's not postmodernist at all, it's actually very modernist. And it is modernist because here are all of like here are all of these various uh, techniques for alienation and estrangement and sort of like aesthetic uh, shaking up that uh, modernists did right stream of consciousness fragmentary uh, sort of observations of psychology uh, and the the story of afternoon. Um, is structured around uh, aporia again and epiphany. Mm-hmm. This is how Arseth is is sort of structuring this argument. And these are two things that are very important in modernist poetics, where, um, like, James Joyce, not Michael Joyce, but James Joyce uh, in particular is known for his use of the epiphany, which is, uh, you know, the this method of constructing short stories uh, where kind of the, the climax of the story is so the is the um moment of psychological insight that a character has into their own situation or their own life or something um or aporia right which is sort of like the the complementary absence of of such an insight and sort of that melancholy recognition that like there is an epiphany there there could be an epiphany here but there isn't one now mm-hmm. um so Rather than saying that uh, Joyce's uh, hypertext is postmodern, he says it is modernist because the experience of reading it is very much like reading a modernist text. It's very fragmentary and so on and so forth. And the experience of reading it is leads you toward these moments of epiphany and aporia where you don't know what's going on. Um, or you might, or you realize like you're missing something, right? There's something missing from your knowledge. And so you have to like go click back through a different, um, series of, of Lexia in order to get some additional piece of context. Uh, the sort of result of this for Arseth is that this is not, Afternoon is not itself a narrative, um, it is rather a like weird collection of scriptons that get assembled into textons, and then when a he, he uh, specifically talks about this one critic Douglas, um, who writes about uh, Afternoon, um, he says that like here is her experience playing it because she basically writes this kind of phenomenological like I am working through a plot in this way I think this I feel this blah 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 blah. Um, He's like, this is a narrative, right? It's her narrative of play, but the text itself does not contain this narrative. Because it it is the act of assembling the events that you are experiencing in your head that generates narrative. 
right in the case of an ergodic experience right um so the idea i guess is that if you were reading a regular book then all of those events that had to be assembled in your head were already assembled in the head of the author uh and in this case uh because afternoon is kind of this it's not um again it is it is actually in its concerns very modernist he is not incorrect in in saying that um but because it is not sort of presenting them in a linear fashion in the way that like i don't know mrs dalloway might um all of these sort of insights into a character's uh sort of mental state are not being present even though uh modernist writing can be very opaque and elliptical um it is nevertheless usually something you read from beginning to end uh because joyce's novel you can kind of sprawl out in different directions it is i don't know it's it's a modernist realization or like it's it's a it's a weird fruition of modernist aesthetics in a not at all modernist environment which is another word for postmodern i would say <laughs> so i think it's very interesting that he goes out of his way to be like oh it's not a postmodern novel it's just a modernist novel written in a hypertext which is actually like that's what postmodernism would be, right? <laughs> like, it would be the thing where they took the modernist idea and they put it into some context that is changing or influencing or speaking back to whatever the modernist concern was. It, it is interesting to me that, I mean, there's two things that I'm thinking of immediately. Uh, the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, mm -hmm. which requires all this kind of stuff, except it is read linearly in... Um, book time for lack of a better term right uh, you know mm -hmm. we, we are doing it phenomenal time who knows um there's not a discussion in this book about phenomenal time and like human time so we don't really know one way or the other but the other thing i'm thinking about is, especially based on what you just said is the cut up right so william s burroughs mm -hmm. and all of mm -hmm. those kind of like literary experiments in that way where it seems to me i, I would have loved to hear an argument about um, so William S. Burroughs writes Naked Lunch and then cuts it all into pieces and then reassembles it. And then the book that we get is the printed version of that. So it meets mm -hmm. the qualifications or, or it's very similar to Afternoon in all ways up to the moment it is printed in a book. And then it disqualifies itself by reasserting itself back into phenomenal time. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that if you play Afternoon more than one time, you're going to end up in a very similar spot than that, right? The fact, I mean, it is a database of a fully delimited set of information mm -hmm. that can that can only be recombined in so many ways. But yeah, once we start getting to the edges of this argument, I, I just start feeling like all these weird spots of like, this feels like a theory that's built out of of afternoon more than it's a theory that's built to accommodate afternoon well does that make sense like well 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 because I, I have all <laughs> these like edge cases that i'm thinking about that they obviously don't meet the definition that he is is pushing here like and, and i don't think he's wrong for creating a definition that speaks to his object but also it's like it's the moment of the transferability of of the medium i mean if i took if i took my uh, you know um um afternoon out and i printed all of the nodes onto a sheet onto sheets of paper and i shuffled them all together it seems like it would still get to be afternoon in all of its ways 
And it, yeah. And so then if I put a, is it the act of putting a spine on it that that turns it from afternoon into naked lunch? Because <laughs> if we're going to be empirical and we're going to point to specific material transformations as the thing that changes the medium, then it seems like being able to reshuffle those papers, boom, good to go. Um, but the moment that we literally put a piece of twine through a loop in the corner, it transforms it into something different. And that seems very interesting to me. I don't, I don't even necessarily mm-hmm. think it's wrong, but that seems like an interesting bright line to draw. Right. Well, and I think that this is an important thing to notice. This is the last paragraph of this chapter. The terms and perspectives developed here, although they were developed with the structure of one specific text in mind, should have relevance to the field of hypertext discourse in general. It is my hope that they stimulate further critical thought, both on the special problems of understanding the similarities and differences between hypertext and codex. Codex is, of course, um, what the traditional book is is called technically. Um, And on the way terms inherited from codex literary theory affect our perceptions in a new field. Uh, which is, I guess, a fine ending, right? But it's essentially saying, like, please note, like, he he ends this chapter essentially saying, like, please note that uh, this reading that sort of proves all of my, like, like, what are very clearly all of, like, my very, my various hobby horses, please note that this is not representative, Right, it's it's a very strange rhetorical tactic to take, to like have this reading that is like very clearly geared toward, um, you know, sort of like the project of this book, and then just being like, but it might not be representative, even though I have constantly talked about it and treated it as if it were. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, yeah, like like I said, I don't have any. A, I don't have any interest, and B, I don't have any like incentive to dismantle this. But if yeah. you know, if we begin looking at micro steps in between here, I, I just have a hard time thinking of of how things that apply here don't begin applying to other places. And I would love for the analysis to to rather than drawing the center and then expanding that center out into an arbitrary place where he stops talking, I would have loved mm-hmm. some limits to be drawn and then get into the object. If you're well, if you're making claims about the field and why this is a new field of study, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and and with that in mind, then what do you think of the next chapter, which is intrigue and discourse in the adventure game? So I think this is because that, I, I I like this chapter. I think it's cool. It's very long. I think yeah. it might be the longest chapter. I think it is. Um, I think it's interesting. Although the first fifteen pages are just explaining what adventure games are. Which is, yep. Uh, I mean, I guess very helpful. I'm, I'm appreciative, appreciative of that. So uh, both the thing I like the I mean, it was 1997. So it was well. So there had only been 25 years of adventure games before yeah. that. Um, uh, but um, it has both my favorite thing in this book and my least favorite thing in this book. Oh, and what are those things? Well, my favorite thing in this book uh, is his concept of intrigue on page 112. I like this a lot, too. I think this is cool. Uh, he says... Uh, I'm just going to read like a big chunk of uh, a paragraph here. It's on 112. Hence, it could be argued that the reader is, or at least produces, the story. Okay? So this is like what we got in the last chapter, too. A more modern mm-hmm. proposition is that there is no story at all in the traditional sense. This is also what he says about Afternoon. 
Contrary to Nice and Holland's claim that the adventure game does no more than introduce an extra stage, I argue that it effectively disintegrates any notion of story by forcing the player's attention on the elusive plot. That's in quotation marks. Instead of a narrated plot, Cybertext produces a sequence of oscillating activities effectuated, but certainly not controlled, by the user. But there is nevertheless a structuring element in these texts, which in some ways does the controlling, or at least motivates it. As a new term for this element, I propose intrigue to suggest a secret plot in which the user is innocent, but is, is the innocent, but voluntary target. Victim is too strong a term, <laughs> with an outcome that is not yet decided, or rather with several possible outcomes that depend on various factors, such as the cleverness and experience of the player. Um, and then kind of works through kind of a history of intrigue after that. But uh, this is on the next page. Uh, also, ergodic liter uh, intrigue must have more than one explicit outcome and cannot therefore be successful or unsuccessful. This attribute here depends on the player. So he's basically saying that that because of the way that adventure games are structured, they're basically a conspiracy. Um, mm -hmm. And that the player, based on their capabilities or their experience in the genre or whatever, uh, their kind of natural affinity for you know weird, obscure puzzles, however you want to think about it, that they become more or less operative within that conspiracy. But nevertheless, it's this kind of like shadow game of intrigue. It's almost like a, uh, like a detective novel all the time. Which I think to anyone who plays adventure games, you're like, yes, of course. That makes a whole lot of sense. Like that there's this grand operation of puzzles and plot and expectations that I don't know anything about <laughs> and I'm forced to interact with. But, but I like this as a lens for talking about that. I, I appreciate this term a lot. Yeah, no, I I really liked this idea as well. That idea of and and honestly, partly it um it spoke to me because it that's it's sort of how I think when I'm doing narrative and game design is is thinking of I I, I never would have uh, necessarily like have called it intrigue right, but I am when I am doing an, a narrative design, I am very conscious of the ways that I am like trying to entrap the reader like entrap might be too strong a word right but i am essentially like setting up a thing through which the reader is going to have to navigate uh and you want to have it kind of interesting enough to like hook them and draw them along in various paths so i feel like the the intrigue is a really like nice thing that he pulls in here yeah i think so i think it's i think it's really um i would loved if this book had been full of this kind of thing of rather than boundary drawing that that i find very confusing about what the boundary is doing um statements about qualities of these games because um, mm -hmm. i even think that intrigue actually draws together all those claims we were just talking about hypertext right that that there is a but because of the nature of being a player like because of your position in the the apparatus that is the game it means you have certain things you're looking for and certain things your attention is drawn to and that's in a network of other things that are happening so it's intrigue in this in this case because there are very much expected outcomes in the same way that like the detective is going to discover the femme fatale's body right in a in a, in a, a noir story like that's part mm -hmm. of the genre or whatever the right. adventure game and, has that in it. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and it's um, it builds off of the claim that he made at the end of the previous chapter, which is that hypertext make... He, one of the things he says is that um, 
the hypertext reader becomes like a meta reader because they become aware of their own sort of reading process as they try to describe like if you ask someone who has played a hypertext what happened it becomes like well i did this this and this right here here are here is my experience with what happened um the object of contemplation um becomes not just so much like the text itself but like what you did in uh experiencing the text uh this it this this idea of adventure games or games in general as systems of intrigue is very similar because it becomes the the successful or like most successful i guess players will become aware that they are operating within a system and trying to get certain outcomes yeah and i and i think that this is like the this fundamental claim that this is all scaffolded on that that there isn't a narrative so much as there is the phenomenal experience of events that is then narrativized in the brain. I, I think that is like fundamentally correct. Right. Um, yes. And I think that's a way of getting at, say, for example, boredom, um, you know, playing, <laughs> I, I recently reviewed gears of war five and I thought it was not a game that I enjoyed. Um, and part of the reason I didn't enjoy it is because there are long segments in the third act where you were just driving, across some sand and you're listening to people talk and um the talk is not built into a plot because you could be doing this at any time during this level and you could be doing it in between many different random side events and so it's like idle chatter that doesn't really develop the characters it's more of these just kind of barks of general content and i i absolutely thought i mean it, it, like that is designed based on the idea of there's a plurality of possible experiences here, and so we just need to fill up every moment with something that could be put into the phenomenal experience of time and narrative, right? <laughs> uh, there is no structure yeah. to this world, and so we need to just fill it up with stuff. When reality, right, and, and this is the what I think Arseth is, or this is why Arseth made me think about that. For me as a player, writing in silence is narrative to me. And yeah. writing while I'm hearing people have idle chatter is narrative to me. I'm experiencing that as the narrative flow of the game. One of those would be tolerable and contemplative. The other one drove me absolutely bonkers. <laughs> and so I'm able to ergodically understand that choices were made. And, and I'm being limited in my choices of what I'm having to listen to. Thank you, Espinorseth, for giving me the language to uh, under to review Gears to, Five to think about why I really, truly did not enjoy Gears Five. <laughs> um, but there's also a part I yes. didn't like about this chapter, Michael. There is a part about this chapter that is really not so great. It is weird. Um, do you want me to cover this one? Well, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, well you can you can go for it then, since you he brought it. He up. talks about the game Deadline. From 1982, which I've not played, but which seems really cool. It's a detective story. And um, it's like a like kind of a locked room mystery. It's basically the game Clue, it seems like. Like on yeah. a timer, which is cool. I'm not mad about that. It seems, it seems dope. Um, but then he says, this is on 115. He, he's describing the relationship between the character, like the player character, you. This is a parser game, so you are typing verbs and nouns into the thing. So, like, speak to Mr. McNabb or, uh, you know, go north, go, go door, things like that. 
Um, but the, all of the characters are a little bit wooden, right? Because this is 1982. They don't have, like, a deep simulation going on within them. They are responsive to the verbs you're giving them. And uh, that leads him to say this. Personal relations, this is a quote, personal relations and habits in an adventure game like Deadline might, be best, might best be described as autistic. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines autism as a neurobiological disorder that affects physical, social, and language skills. Further, it may be, this is, he's, he's, uh, this is a quotation within the quotation, it may be characterized by meaningless, non-contextual echolalia, constant repetition of what is said by others, or the replacement of speech by strange mechanical sounds. Inappropriate attachment to objects may occur. There may be underemphasized reaction to sound, no reaction to pain, or no recognition of genuine danger, yet autistic children are extremely sensitive. Okay, that's the end of the quote, uh, of his quote inside of his quote. This is still him speaking, or writing. Mm -hmm. The characters you meet in Deadline appear to be living in their own private worlds. When, questions, when questioned, they repeat themselves without making sense, and you may stand next to them for hours without any sign that they know you were there. Intelligent conversation is exceedingly difficult and breaks down after at most a few exchanges. And your own behavioral range is not much better as you try to guess the word combinations that will unlock the mystery. And so he just kind of keeps going on and on about like the inadequacy of these characters. And these characters are described as inadequate because they are autistic. This sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks real hard. Like, just to be clear of, like, what is actually happening in this chapter is he pulls in a definition of autism from the Encyclopedia Britannica online, right? Like, in, like, genuine, like, an, like, an article about autism, about autistic people, and then uses that as a method of reading the fictional characters in a computer game. And, and basically, right, there's a transitive, a, a transitive property here, right, of... Right. He is saying that the NPCs in Deadline are inadequate as real human beings. Right. And, because they can be described as autistic. Well, well, actually, we can best describe them as autistic because they are inadequate. Right. Like, that. that mm -hmm. that's what, like, he kind of treats it as, like, this is the necessary term for even getting at it. Which... Right. Uh, is perhaps bad, <laughs> you know, yes. to put it lightly. I don't know. I don't know if that is the the kind of a obviously it is dehuman, literally dehumanizing to people with autism. But b, I don't even know if that describes what the hell's going on here. I don't even think it's it's an appropriate descriptor of what is going on with the design of an NPC. Um, no, it's 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 so bizarre because yeah, no, that's this is what it is. It's like he's like. NPCs are weird and janky, and rather than acknowledging this, or like, I don't know, finding some way of dealing with that fact, he's like, oh, they're inadequate, and he's going to do it in this, like, really awful, dehumanizing, ableist way. Yeah, it is, it is bizarre. And again, I don't I don't know anything about Espen Arseth. Espen Arseth might be on the spectrum. This might be a, a moment of self-representation. I don't know. That is not revealed in the book. You know, I don't—I don't—I want to— leave a door open for a reading of this that I just don't possibly have access to. But reading this text that is in front of me and dealing with it in linear phenomenal time, as I'm destined to do because it has a spine on it, this is... Mm -hmm. There's no ebook. There's no ebook of this, ironically. But, so I can't even turn it into a hypertext if I wanted to. So given my forced experience of this book, I have to say that this is bad. And I don't care for it. And I think that this is a bad way of trying to 
to do analysis of a thing that is not a human being. And maybe you just shouldn't use like human being, uh, the, the experience of, of being a human in terms we use to medicalize the human to apply to weird digital objects that are not those things. Right. It's, I mean, it's just, it's such a bizarre tactic to take rhetorically. It would be like me reading a traditional novel, finding one of the characters to be, you know, poorly written or unconvincing, and then like flipping through like my copy of the DSM to figure out like what's wrong with how they've been written. Yeah. It's like, I, I didn't understand a choice they were making. And so they must be bipolar. Right, like, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe he wrote all of these bipolar. Yeah, characters. Yeah, I can't believe James Joyce wrote all thing. those bipolar characters. Right, like it doesn't. Um, that doesn't make any sense. And we're saying this, of course, we're kind of making a joke about it, but that's literally the 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 system that is being applied to this. And I, yeah, I it is. I don't think that is uh, good. I think that's bad. It is so weird and so out of nowhere, and just. Um, and also because we've already mentioned like the way that the imperialism like don't colonize games language gets brought up um this way of thinking about people as like human people as npcs or non-player characters of course also has recently had a, a weird bubbling up in reactionary corners of of gaming um yeah. and again not saying that like espen arseth did it but i think it's worth pointing out when these patterns of thought occur even if they seem distinct or like happening for distinct reasons um yeah, because yeah, they are not causal but they are argumentatively the same and so what yes. does that mean you know what right. do we do with that <sighs> which kind of it, it, and this is a bummer a in the obvious ways that we just talked about but b because deadline seems interesting and his analysis of deadline is in fact interesting it is some of the the best. In fact, it's the closest reading he does in this entire book. It yeah, like he. This is the only game where he kind of walks us through moment by moment in the game. So he gives us this really interesting analysis later to where because you know it's it's a murder mystery and so there's a murdered figure. But then he walks us through the fact that you could still use all these verbs on the murdered body, and so it's like mm -hmm. the you know the guys is. Um, is murdered on the floor, but you can like talk to him and you can throw things at him and you can do, and he'll like duck right, out right. of the way. And it's like, well, that's, that's a little bit weird. Right. And that there's this kind of incommensurability between the, the world, the game is supposedly representing to you. And then what the actions you can do to that world. Right. This is, um, uh, textons and what's the other one? Sorry. Scriptons, right. This is that kind of weird relationship between surface and depth texton and scripton that he was talking about before it's a great illustration of that that is wholly couched within this like very bizarre medicalizing techno analysis mm -hmm. i don't care for it michael <clears throat> i don't either it's not great um but let's see is there anything else you want to cover in that chapter then? um no i mean i i think that if you want he plays out the kind of intrigue logic that's there um, mm -hmm. but it, um, but he literally is just playing it out, right? He's just walking you through how it say, shows up. Yeah. 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 If you've played an adventure game, um, then you know what he's talking about when he's talking about that intrigue model. Yeah. Um, and right. so, I mean, if you've, if you've played Gone Home, right, you, you know what he's talking about. Yes. Yeah. Gone Home's actually, uh, maybe, uh, that's a, it's a great illustration of that, of, uh, like expectation and boundary. 
Right, exactly, because that game is so much about um, drawing on conventions of, like, the first-person field of view and that sort of game, and also, like, of course, the team behind it. Uh, what What is this game going to be? And then setting up all of these, like, weird little points of, literal, literally, like, points of intrigue uh, that you track as you move through the house. So. Yeah. And luckily, there are no NPCs, so they don't seem weird and inhuman and ruin your experience, which they kind of seem to do for our yeah. Seth. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of expectations about the Christmas duck before I went into that game. You know, I, <sighs> to me, the Christmas, Christmas duck, duck never has a key underneath it. <laughs> and lo and behold, surprise, a key underneath the Christmas duck. All right, chapter six, the cyborg author. Problems of automated poetics yeah so i don't have a lot to say about this book or this chapter because i think mm -hmm. that the and tell me what you think here but i believe that this mm -hmm. chapter's argument is uh you can't use machines to generate books yeah books that make sense or just good books maybe because they can make sense good books. i guess yeah i guess but they're true. not good um uh, <clears throat> yes. Um, so one of, to come at this from a literary studies perspective, uh, one of the things that, uh, Arseth pulls into this chapter is this idea of the implied author, which comes out of not only reader response theory, but kind of, um, narratology and structuralism, um, from the middle of the last century. Uh, the implied author is the sort of, unreal version of the author of the book so when i talk about uh a poem by shakespeare and i say something like you know here the speaker does or not the speaker but like here shakespeare does this that or the other or like this is what shakespeare is up to um obviously i have no way of knowing what shakespeare was doing but i am projecting sort of backward behind the text a kind of implied author who seems to be up to something who seems to want to make certain points as I am reading the text. Um, the obviously like the, the, the only access we have to the implied author is the text itself, mm -hmm. right? The, the implied author is always like that projection from the text. Um, the thing that he points out in this chapter is that you cannot so much treat the text that you are reading as something that implies an author right like that the, that the implied author or implied programmer um is in some key way different from the actual narrative voice that you encounter as a reader does that make sense yes right so <clears throat> the the this gets proved by various story generation tools some of which we've actually again already talked about um especially in janet murray's book hamlet on the holodeck uh things like tailspin uh, I think Tailspin is the one that, like, generates animal fables. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> he talks about, he talks so, about, like, seven different things in this, uh... Yes. Uh, what do you call it? Chapter. Yeah. Now he talks about lots of things, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, but... So, for instance, uh, in what I think is Tailspin, which is this program that generates, like, animal fables, um you make a like the, the point is like the actual animal fables that this 
program produces are not very good or interesting. Um, but the implied author of the program is, of course, like, doing more than what is actually visible to you as a reader in any particular, like, any one particular generated fable. Right. Here's a story. Henry Squirrel was thirsty. He walked over to the riverbank where his good friend Bill Bird was sitting. Henry slipped and fell in the river. He was unable to call for help. He drowned. The end. The end. That's the story. Right. And uh, Arseth, says, Arseth says, In a normal tale, Henry would have been saved by his friend Bill, but Tailspin was not programmed to make Bill act without first being asked for help. To which I say, that story is metal as shit and way better. <laughs> he was unable to call for help. What more do you want? Right. Right. The end. end. No moral. There's not a moral. He drowned. Don't go to the river. <laughs> That's the moral. If you can't swim. Right. So yeah, the, the, the distinction that Arseth would want to make is that with that story that you just read that was assembled um, like by a program, we cannot read it for the implied author in the way that we would read a normal story. Yeah. However... <laughs> As your response to the story has just, I think, kind of suggested, that's not necessarily true. Or, like, you can you can still make a kind of coherent meaning out of that story, even if it uh, isn't... Even if it is clearly kind of weirdly subjunctive to what we think of as, like, an animal fable. Quote yeah, unquote, if you right? slap that with an Edward Gorey pa- or picture underneath it, that that is like fully coherent within a very well trod universe of of like text, right? Some Tim Burton ass looking illustration. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, that's sort of the that's what this chapter is about. Is is what we just laid out? Is he makes this particular claim, another claim, uh, where he wants to make a kind of hard and fast boundary um, between cybertexts and uh, other types of texts that are concerned with like more traditional senses of narrative uh, that upon scrutiny it kind of maybe doesn't hold up like again we're left in this situation where it's like maybe like could you say more yeah right could you could you press on this just a little bit more because we can so readily think of so many limit cases or so many things that seem to just ipso facto contradict the claim being made yes I don't, I, I mean, I guess I, I like the distinctions that are being made here around like, because um, he has a chart on 135 where he says like there's pre-processing. So there's like organizational principles. So like tailspin generating that out of uh, some code, right? So the mm-hmm. code being like you have two actors show up in the scene and they do verbs. And if certain verbs happen, then certain actions happen that generate new verbs. And you can kind of daisy chain the story along there, right? Um and then he says, but then there's co-processing and post-processing, right? So manipulation at the time, at the level of when the text is being generated. And then post-processing, which would be like curation or um, uh, manipulation, right? So one of them, he talks about this book called The Policeman's Beard, which is mm-hmm. both a text, but both a program and a book. And if you look at the two different versions of it, it's clear that the book version has re- really been manipulated in some way along the line uh, where it becomes more coherent and more bizarre and more weird. It's basically a book written out of Mad Libs as far as I can tell. 
Um, but yeah. the Mad Libs are more interesting due to what he claims to be a human hand in the published version, as opposed to the raw text that comes out of it, which is not interesting at all. Um, and so I think all that is interesting, uh, that we have kind of different gradations of interaction with text. Although I would say that, you know, if you look at stuff like Nano Genmo, which runs every November, some very interesting and very fully coherent stuff comes out of that um, every single year. And so I don't know if it is, I, I don't know if time is proving Arseth less correct or not. <laughs> um, one of my favorite Nano Genmo things, Nano Genmo is when people write algorithms to auto-generate books of some sort. Um, my favorite one is Darius Kazemi, who founded NanoGenmo, um, created one. I forget the title of it, but it is just like 40,000 words of teenagers entering rooms and leaving rooms. And that's all it is. <laughs> and as he pointed out at the time, it reads like a Brady Stinellis novel. I mean, it's, it's, kind, of, yeah. it's kind of brilliantly uh, handled because it is like they come in, they do some sort of action. They do actions with other characters that are in that room, and then they leave the room. And then they go into another room where someone else comes into the room. Um, and, you know, maybe we could say that that is a tendency in fiction that has made it more machine-like. But whatever, however we land on it, um, it's coherent. And I think that if you read it, you could think it's a literary experiment and not necessarily think it's generated. Um, although fidelity to, like, a human mind is not what Arseth is after, to be clear. He talks about Brenda Laurel's uh, idea of like she she has this uh her book was uh computers as theater uh which is kind of an anticipation of hamlet on the hollow deck in a lot of ways uh it's a very strange place i feel like for this to come up but uh basically he he brings in brenda laurel's theory here i think kind of to argue that her theory is headed in the wrong direction in in a, in a certain way uh because her idea is that essentially the 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 playtext or the playtext well actually that's a good the word play for it, but like the game <laughs> right <laughs> a game um is a kind of machine that inducts you into a dramatic situation um all all games for this is like a very simplified version of what laurel is trying to argue because she's she's coming out of aristotle she's using aristotle's theories of drama um, for construction uh, in progression of the plot and so on uh, to understand how we as players get pulled into the narratives of games. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that Arseth ends up saying, well, so what Laurel says is that the reader has to be kind of, or the reader player has to be kind of induced or convinced to cooperate with the game, right? The seduction, I believe, is actually the word that she uses. Um, so there are a couple of problems with this for Arseth. One is that um, it the game cannot, like, quote-unquote, force you, right? It must seduce you, because if it forces you, then you see what he calls... Uh, the dumb mechanical entity uh, that is calling the shots, as we saw in Deadline. So I just want to pause there uh, and point out that basically this is just how all games are, right? Like, I think to some extent, like, all games have this dumb mechanical layer that we inevitably encounter. Mm -hmm. So position like trying to like come up with a theory where that is totally obscured i think is just wrong-headed right um uh 
I think that that's what comes with games, at least currently. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the... This is something we've seen basically everything post-2000 that we've read, right? That that there is a utopian horizon, and I mean that in like a Frederick Jameson sense, right? There, There is something beyond the visible realm, but conceptually we can think about it, right? That mm-hmm. we are, that video game studies and discussions of video games before, you know, I don't know, 2000 or so was chasing. And it's the idea that the, the machinery of this thing can be wholly obscured. The operation or the mechanic will be fully obscured underneath aesthetic experience. And I think what's interesting here mm-hmm. is that it it seems to just on face dismiss that the aesthetic experience might be the crunchiness of the thing like right. the, the mechanic and and the surface levelness of the mechanic thinking here of like crusader kings or xcom or telling mm-hmm. lies or any of those kinds of games where it's like in your face about the kind of operations you're trying to do the, that that is the aesthetic part of it like that that is not mm-hmm. some sort of different level from experience the 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 joy of the game is having the mode of interaction in your face i mm-hmm. yeah i don't it, it doesn't seem to be something to yeah, get rid of exactly and so the second part of this the second sort of fault that he finds in uh, brenda laurel's theory um <clears throat> is that so laurel says that you know the 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 sort of like you know computer games as theater thing uh is a it's a uniquely kind of what she calls first person mm-hmm. mode right like when you are playing a game you are you are the the player character or act you are whatever active party is kind of like pushing through this story um which might it might be better understood as like you know it's kind of a second person mode like if you're reading a twine game you are standing here you go here that sort of thing anyway um arseth also (laughs) arseth has this weird little jab where he's like well actually first person is usually used in lyric poetry so uh, (laughs) um which is just again like one of those weird things where it's just like you are totally miss like just reading right past what she is clearly Mm -hmm. saying um but anyway he also says that because uh, games induct the reader in, in these ways, um, the theatrical model actually ends up being insufficient because, and here's what he says, caught by the theatrical metaphor, the playwright paradigm, that is to say, um, to sort of think about uh, games as, as uh, plays and the author and or reader as as the writer in some sense, um, the playwright paradigm treats the implied user on the one hand as a dramatis persona, that is to say, as a character in the play, and on the other, as the audience. In other words, both as an agent without a will and as a watcher without a say. So, for Arseth, this is a problem for the theatrical model. And I will legitimately, for real, say right now, this encapsulates better than almost anything I have read uh, why exactly it is I do what I do. Because this is how early modern plays work. They are constantly acknowledging that the audience is there and that they are reliant on the audience for their effect. Right? Like, uh, 
right? Like Shakespeare's Henry V opens with, um, and not this is not unique to early modern plays, right? I think all sorts of plays, like from this point forward, have done things like this. But like Shakespeare's Henry V opens very famously with this um, induction. This character called the prologue um, reads this long speech, "Oh, for amuse a fire," basically saying like, "I'm going to tell you this wildly epic mythologized story that you've heard about this great king from our history that everyone loves, and it's going to look like crap." Right? It's going to be so bad. Like, I cannot take you to France where all of where, where, where the, the battles raged. Right? I cannot um, show you the, the soldiers lined up, like, ready in formation. I cannot show you the splendor of the king in all his finery. But if you in the audience are willing to to sit this out, if you're willing to lend your imagination to us and pretend that the things that we are saying are up here, are up here, we can show you a really good time. And this problem recurs really consistently throughout the early modern theater for various like philosophical and theological uh, reasons. Um, the idea that by a certain number of people getting together in a place and deciding to believe something for at least two hours that something seems or feels real. Sounds like chaos right? magic. The audience... Michael. Yes, I mean, <laughs> it is, right? Um, but, like, seriously, like, the, 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 the early modern theater is totally obsessed with the idea of the audience as um, being a watcher without a say as well as an agent without a hmm. will. Right? Like, that is... Like, that is... So, like, I don't, I'm gonna cite Espen Arseth in, in this Shakespeare paper Do I'm it. writing because that's the problem of the theater. Uh, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and now we're into chapter seven Songs from the Mud, Multi User <laughs> Discourse. What a what that's a, a title. Rad title. Also, it begins with a quote from Whitehead, and then Whitehead does not show up the rest of the chapter. Yeah, I was I was really excited for some Whitehead to actually show up in the text, but no, we just get that epigram. Yeah. We think in generalities, but we live in detail. Alfred North, North Whitehead, a Great, citation cool. unknown. I think right. <laughs> yeah, there's no. Uh, yeah, no, no. There's no. There's no mark. No for entry it. in the thing either. I don't think. Right. Let's find out. See what. H, nope, not not in the uh, bibliography. Anyway, um, this basically, if people don't know what a mud is, you can read the first like ten pages of this chapter. And muds based on you know idea of they're kind of the pre MMO if you know what an MMO is. The idea is they were text based, they were networked, they were um, access accessible to multiple people. So when they were initially made by uh, Bartle and the other guy Trub. Trub something. I don't know why I can't think of his name. I don't remember either. Um, I, I taught this for a while. I should know this. But um, anyway, the two creators of them, they were they were kind of multi-terminal in the same place, in the same location. And eventually, they become networked. And uh, they're just the precursor for, for the MMO. The idea is that you are in a big shared map. And, um, you know, there are game masters that have the ability to add and delete objects. They expanded the games they uh police the people there are npcs in the game that kind of are bots that do stuff all kinds of stuff like that basically uh Arseth is reading the mud as a 
like literary situation and suggesting that like mm-hmm. this really is the mud is the payoff to all this kind of stuff he's been talking about because there is this kind of manipulation of mechanics that are happening all the time. So, so you get this kind of constant stream of information that's coming into your face. You're having to read it. So this is people who are picking items up and dropping items. These are people who are, are fighting in like the little node that you're in in the same shared like room, basically. Um, these are people having conversations in public, people talking, and this is all happening, boom, 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 all at one time, and you're having to make very active choices about what you are doing and how you are receiving this information. Um, and that that's what, it's, a, it's, every moment is an expression of ergodicity, and it all kind of uh, completes into one big object that, that doesn't have kind of strong traditional distinctions. Right. It is, um, yeah, I mean, I, the thing I think to really make a point of here is that for Arseth, like, genuinely, muds are where it's at. Mm-hmm. Like, that is, like, muds are the apex of whatever cybertexts can be, at least as far as he seems to understand them at this moment. Um, which is a very interesting and strange kind of place to end up at, mm-hmm. I guess. Especially because uh, you, you said you've compared them to MMOs, right? But like, what muds always remind me of is like AOL chat yeah. rooms. They're somewhere right, right in I the mean, middle of those they, two things. Right. It's like it's a spatialized chat mm-hmm. room, um, and uh, it's it's just strange, like how invested in sort of like how into muds Arseth is. There's a bit where. Um, uh, where is it? Where he's talking about the um, the functionality where, like, you can go into uh, uh, a room in a mud and you can do an action, but it doesn't have to be a pre-programmed action. You can do it's like the it's if you've ever used IRC Internet Relay Chat, it's just like the slash me, mm-hmm. right? You just like slash me um, dances around and then throws off my hat, and then that shows up in the chat as I dance around and, like, whatever my username is, dances around and throws off his hat, right? Um, he valorizes that ability really, really strongly. Yeah, because that means that for any single human being who is expressing in that realm, you can create you, you can create literary narrative content, right? If narrative always lives in the head of the end user, then there's infinite human variability of what could be implemented into that narrative right so you can see why this why this whole thing gets valorized right this is the optimal way that video games should work for him yeah so what he says is instead of the predefined finite set of actions in a plot controlled cybertext muds allow this is from page 154 by the way muds allow an infinite set of elusive quasi actions with no simulated model behind them this poetic freedom puts the mud phenomenon closer to the tropes and figures of linear expression literature than many other types of cybertext and establishes it as perhaps the ultimate quote-unquote literary game. Yeah, and so much like Joyce can do whatever the hell he wants when he's writing Ulysses, you can do whatever the hell you want when you're playing a mud, and everyone who is playing that mud can do whatever the hell they want, creating literally infinite maybe not infinite but a very big space of variability 
and potential literary quality. And mm-hmm. definitely not a huge amount of pornography. No, no, no. Definitely that would never that. happen. There would not be a massive nope. amount of, of human writing that's just straight up cyber pornography. Yeah, there's there's no pornography. There's no uh you know uh crypto nazis no. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not to disparage pornography no, no. or I, I want i would like to disparage crypto nazis but um not pornography yeah. but just to say that like and not to say that pornography is not literary but um the variability means that this can be operationalized in lots and lots and lots of different ways and he is choosing one particular way that that uh, exists for him to valorize and not, you know, right. using this to, I don't know, say communicate with people across the world as a mode of getting black market ecstasy delivered to your door. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and this is so. This is the other. This is one of the consequences of the way that he kind of like just uh, evacuates the ethical dimension of technology earlier on. Um, that's one thing. That's one consequence of this. Um, and then sort of to touch on like the pornography Nazis and like black market ecstasy thing. Um, he's essentially also describing like Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the modern, the modern mud is social media. Yeah. Um, it's not as spatialized, of course, right? There's not like a specific, like, it's not like there are little like rooms that you walk between, but it's the same kind of, uh, thing where like anyone essentially can kind of hop into this huge mess of discourse and like really produce whatever they want uh up until like the program or like the program the platform boots them or they get driven off or whatever yeah i mean just go and like look at the rock like Dwayne the rock johnson go to his twitter oh okay and just go to his twitter and click on any tweet and look at the ways that people are interacting with him they they are tweeting at him as if they are tweeting at a real actual person and not like a brand. Um, they they are doing it in such a way that that they are projecting onto and seemingly receiving something from him as a human being, and that is exactly the phenomenon that he points to with this bot that's in the game that allows you to buy and sell things that people think is a real human being. Mm-hmm. Like, Dwayne yes. The Rock Johnson's a real human being. His Twitter account is, like, an abstraction of a persona of a marketing... Or of a piece of intellectual property, right? His star text. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think that, that Twitter is a very apt comparison here. Um, argue, arguably, it's the evolved form, and, like, World of Warcraft is the insufficient form because it's certainly much more delimited in what you're able to do than a mm-hmm. mug. You can't whip your hat off and dance right. around unless there's an emo right. for it and or then, whatever, or an action. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then he, he has, uh, um, like excerpts from like transcripts from a mud, uh, where he tries to show how, like 
how different the experience of reading a MUD transcript is. And it reads just like an old AOL chat room transcript or an IRC transcript. But then he maps um, how, like, so this person enters and uh, they immediately say hello, but then this other conversation is already happening. And so we get a few lines of this conversation that exists prior to the point at which we started reading. Um, and then people start saying hello to the person who just entered. So it's all like, you, you get to see the asynchronicity of all of this discourse playing out, which again is like, it's reading the Twitter timeline, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like he, he, it's, it's, and I'm not saying that like, he shouldn't have thought that this was really cool and interesting. Cause I think actually it is, but it's really funny to have this book being like, wow, look at this. Like what's the blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, yeah, that's how you read Twitter. Yeah. And it sucks. <laughs> it's just such a, it sucks. It's, it's not awful. fun. It's, it's not a good thing to do with your time or your life. Uh, yeah, social uh -huh. media really, again, this is another thing that kind of unifies everything before the early 2000s that we've read. Social media throws a big wrench into, like, claims that get made in all these books. Mm -hmm. um, which is not to say these claims are wrong, but, like, if, if the mode of interaction that is, like, most difficult, or one of the most difficult modes of interaction as far as like the, the cost it puts on you as a human being is the thing that's being valorized here, then, then maybe it was more complicated even at the time. Cause I, you know, mm -hmm. muds were also a great instance of like social bullying. I, I was thinking there's at some point he talks about like social capital or something, which I think is extremely important to think about. Yeah, with social he media. does. He also says, I think I have this quote written down. He says, um, this is on 145, so it's the very beginning of the chapter. He says, Any system that must regulate its discourse by social pressure and convention rather than by clearly defined regulations is more than a game, both more real and more perilous. <laughs> True. Um, but also, most games are regulated by social pressure and convention rather than any actual rule. Right. Like, you, you can go into a raid in World of Warcraft and play everything exactly by the rules and you will fail over and over and over and over again is in fact social pressure and convention that determine optimal strategies in everything that is strategic in a video game one of the other things that occurred to me is that muds especially as he's talking about them now uh right and when i say now i mean at the moment he was in writing this chapter in like 1996 yeah. um uh they remind me very much, again, being the, the, the early modernist here, right? Uh, the way he talks about MUDs as a potential object or literary study is the way that people in my field talk about um, uh, intimate circles in, in arist aristocratic intimate circles in the early modern period. So like Sir Philip Sidney, who's this very important poet of the early modern period, um, is kind of a key figure in what is called the Sidney Circle, which is a whole bunch of other nobles who have more or less similar interests. Um, you can also think of it as something like, a, a, I don't know, a, a Usenet group or something. Uh, most of these aristocratic poets are not writing for publication. That's vulgar. That's what, like, people who write for money, that's, like, what common people do. So aristocrats um, who write poetry uh, write it for their friends. They, like, it's like, oh, I wrote a bunch of sonnets, and I'm going to send it to so-and-so who will read them, and then they will send it on to so-and-so who will read them. All of my friends will read my poems, and then when they write me their letters, because, again, this is, like, how you're keeping in contact with all these people is very much, you're, like, writing letters to them, um, this is what we discuss, uh, so it becomes 
this very interesting um like social circle right that's predicated on its exclusions of course uh but is actually geared toward what we think of as literary production Mm -hmm. and what happens in the mud is you get the same social circle but like the goal of literary production even for like amusement among ourselves is kind of not exactly like cut off right because i i can say like when you're in in a mud and you're role playing like part of that fun i think is something it's similar to like writing all of these poems and having my friends read them and then tell me like what they thought of them um but like what is produced is not a poem that could then be like cut out and published Mm -hmm. right like publishing your role play logs from your mud or from twitter or whatever is much different and it's just it's just an interesting comparison Hmm. i think that is interesting you have anything else you want to say about muds michael no chapter eight ruling the reader the politics of interaction (sighs) (laughs) what's that big sigh about michael because so we're returning to interaction again as above Um, so below michael and this as as mm -hmm. in the first chapter as in the last chapter and this sort of um the weird and complicated relationship that Arseth throughout this book has with kind of the most extreme claims for advocates of, of new textualities, which is like, he wants to be like all of these really extreme claims about liberation of the reader or like new forms of authorship, blah, 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 all this stuff. Like there's, it's too ideological there. These people don't know what they're talking about. However, all of this stuff is new and really cool and exciting and there are new like organizations of power that are available mm-hmm. right so it's this it's this constant feeling of like coming into a discussion um actually here's actually this is this is a way i'll put it so as a scholar i love the idea that i am sort of part of this network of people throughout history who have had sort of similar concerns right um even if they are people who have been sort of outside my field proper so someone like who comes up in this book a lot is umberto Mm -hmm. eco right who is probably closer to me than he is to espen arseth but is still pretty different from me because he's a medievalist um and he has all of these very specific interests uh and like i have critiques of umberto eco right there are things that umberto eco says about texts that i would complicate um at the same time uh i don't see that complication in quite the confrontational terms that arseth seems to see every single uh interaction he could possibly have with any other scholar he is not interested in sort of like pulling a network of thought together so much as he is like pulling that network together and then being like but none of none of these people have actually thought about it well enough right he he constantly pulls in these people but then undermines mm-hmm. what they're trying yeah. to say and it's just so weird yeah it's not a uh, charitable I don't think the citational apparatus in this book is charitable. It, things only come in to be points of friction, which is a mode. I certainly write uh, that way. I, I did competitive debate for eight years, and that makes me engage with text in a very particular kind of way. Um, very hard to get out of that. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah. So, but I, I agree 100%, right? There, you know, 
it's weird to like invoke Roland Bart to just be like, yeah, there's just nothing we agree on. We really, there's really only this one intersection with Bart, and uh, it's it's a point of uh, disagreement. So, you know, this chapter is just kind of about reiterating uh, Arseth's point that there are a whole bunch of people who are really interested, like from the the semioticians to the post-structuralists, who are super interested in in the ways that traditional narrative or traditional textuality are going to be unsettled by these these new developments. Um, but none of them are approaching it correctly. Yeah. Um, and then it moves that into a discussion of like, you, you get the feeling that someone read this and was like, yeah, but what does this mean for like the world? And so, so you mm-hmm. get this kind of, and this is something we've talked about multiple times throughout the show that we've been doing, that uh, a chapter or a chunk that's like, and then therefore here's the big context in which we must understand that this. Which is weird because this is a pretty like small book in the sense of it's looking at a very particular problem and trying to craft some solutions for it. And, it, and up until this point, that's what it has said over and over and over again. And then we get to a part in this book on like 166, 167, where he's like, and this is how this has something to do with democracy. <laughs> like in the abstract, right? Um, this is on 166. Mm-hmm. He says, um, he's talking about telephone and email. Are these media democratic? This is a complex question which needs much clarification. What do we need mean by democracy, for, ex- for instance? My preliminary answer is no, they are not democratic in themselves. Network media such as telephone, fax, and email work in a rhizomatic way against the dominant hierarchy since they give peer-to-peer access across organizational or social boundaries and are perfect for creating and maintaining hidden alliances. Uh, see the recent neo-Nazi exploitations of the internet. And for the very same reasons, they cannot be considered inherently democratic. Democracy depends on uh, both hierarchy and rhizome. It needs the dynamic interchange between order and chaos to remain healthy. The technology is neither a problem nor a solution in this dynamic situation, but it serves both structure and counterstructure equally well, which is not to say that it serves everybody equally well. That, that doesn't... Technology is a land of contrast. It, it literally is. Yes. Yes. Technology is a land of contrast. What I particularly find boggling about that little section I read is that he says, things are not democratic in themselves. They allow you to talk in a lot of different ways. But it de- but democracy depends on hierarchy and rhizome. It needs the dynamic interchange between order and chaos to remain healthy. It does seem like the previous three sentences suggested that all of that is happening in those technologies. And so then, therefore, it might be inherently democratic. Now, what he's not willing to say or willing to engage with is maybe democracy is bad. And I'm not I'm not saying that either. <laughs> but that does seem to be like where you would need to take this argument to push it further. Right. Based on how he's kind of set things yeah, up. You would have to then question like the, the notion of democracy and what is the ideological value of pure democracy. Which I like democracy, but I'm not the one pushing on claims about democracy here. Um, yeah. So anyway, but so so yeah, he just kind of works through that. He's working through questions of control. He's working through questions of freedom. He cites a whole lot of people around like technological determinism. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Um, yeah, it turns out you can do a lot of shit with technology. Mm-hmm. 
at one point like there's just there's there's just some moments here where he talks about how like here are all the ways that like technology might actually make us worse people right (laughs) yeah and and who can say that you even have access to technology if you can't be a programmer that's in here too Mm -hmm. and that that's a fair criticism Um, like you know like or that's a fair point to make and that like you and i are twitter users but we're not twitter operators and we're not twitter platform holders and the access to power that say someone with ban ability on twitter has is very different from someone who needs to constantly make requests to ban somebody those are obvious power differentials Mm -hmm. we also get and i can say there's a politics to that right like twitter is actively invested in not allowing you to do large systemic culling or changing of what how you interact with that platform right which is why like external block lists had to be implemented rather than um being built into the platform there's a obvious and clear politics to that they need you to see more tweets and engage with more tweets so they can make more money they still don't make money Mm -hmm. still wildly unprofitable but there's a logic (laughs) to that it's driven by accumulation he doesn't get that far similarly (laughs) I was going to say similarly, right, when he talks about um, on on the World Wide Web, this this new thing, yeah, have you okay. heard of it? Um, in the World Wide Web, uh, you know, you can link between pages and the decision to link is ideologically motivated. Quote, a link heading away from the site is an intentional seeding of power, an explicit acknowledgement of the value of heterotopia and other places or pages on the net that compete for attention, which, of course, has been totally decimated by Facebook and Google. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, it, it is the ability to capture the notion of linking that matters here, which is what they have done, rather than the thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. which which is not to say he's wrong about any of this, right? But this is a systems analysis that doesn't take itself to the conclusion of what kind of effect those systems have on the world. And the effect mm-hmm. that systems have on the world is what he is calling politics. And I don't even know if we need to call that politics. We can just say empirical you know like effects what happens right. and he doesn't really take us to what happens he tells us how it happens and that is only a part of the story right yeah there's this weird thing happening where like politics as such cannot exist in the design yeah yeah or or he just thinks that those are two different conversations when i just don't think the past right. 20 years have bore that out mm-hmm. conclusions so, chapter nine yes uh, the ideology of influence. He's got some great chapter titles. Shout out! He does. Shout outs to Espinosa. Um, this this in itself is uh, another reference to literary work. I think. Uh, I believe this is a reference to Harold Bloom's book, uh, "The Anxiety of yeah. Influence," which is a very uh, influential sort of formalist, post-structuralist uh, reading of how. Uh, poets romantic poets in particular uh through time respond Mm -hmm. to one another so uh this isn't that it's not that related but that seems to be what he's referencing for some reason um this is at the very beginning he says this conversation from an art program on the norwegian radio channel p2 november 21st 1995 illustrates perfectly what i here call the ideology of influence the aesthetic view that some works of art are collective production sites of interaction in which the artist and the beholder come together as equal partners in a creative team and compose something that was not there before. And he's referring there to this kind of epigram that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, he, yeah, he's saying that the argument around the anxiety of influence, which is that multiple people are, are conversing and producing a field in which then you know, generates works, that that is, um, when put into the context of games, perhaps just purely ideological and not true. What do you think of that? I don't know. <laughs> this uh, chapter is only four pages long. Yeah, it's very short. So I don't know if that's a, a well, it's like six pages long, I guess. Um, basically, it's just the um, it's this is the drilling down of the argument made throughout the book that there's a site of narrative generation and there are ways that you can create textual objects, for lack of a better better word, that afford that better than other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he he ties this in actually with anamorphosis which is another interesting thing that shows up so anamorphosis is uh, a thing that's common in in visual studies um it's common actually in early modern uh painting where a a figure is drawn at such a way that when you are looking at the painting so i mean the 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 famous example of this that gets used by um lacan and zizek is hans holbein's painting the ambassadors uh which has this weird smudge right in the center of it it's these these two figures um very stately looking figures and then there's this weird smudge in the middle and if you angle your uh view just right in looking at this painting um, and look at this smudge in just a certain way, you see it's not just a weird smudge, it's in fact a, a skull, a human skull that has been sort of painted at a, intentionally painted in at a weird angle that can, it can only be seen if you take essentially a non-standard viewpoint of the painting. Um, and he talks about how in some ways cybertexts seem like they, they enact anamorphosis in that there are different ways of looking at them and therefore different ways of assembling uh, what you think the text you are talking about is. Yeah, so in his, his comparison, right, is between deadline and afternoon. In afternoon, there is no objective, like, way that story is supposed to function or narrativize itself. And so it, it is not uh, anamorphic. Oh, excuse me. It's not anamorphic because uh, there is no thing to be revealed, no revelatory function of like, oh, that's how I was supposed to look at the thing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Deadline, which you can read the author's summary at the end of the of the game and compare it to compare it to your own summary to determine if you got all the information you were supposed to get and that you truly actually solved the murder. Mm-hmm. It, so, so it's you know standing in the right position um, with the ambassadors. I don't know whether this is good or not. <laughs> like these are certainly two qualities. Yeah. Um, and both require ergodicity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's what is it? It's anamorphic, and then he calls it metamorphic. I believe is the other mm-hmm. one. I guess the that the ideology of influence here and how that does it. So this is later on because I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure actually how this like links up, right? Um, seems like he is more interested in this as a term and as like a way of getting into the question than really playing this out. But so he says, this is on 178. Um, 
The problem with the ideology lies in the fact that the function of the beholder and the function of the creator are quite separate, temporally, materially, intellectually, and socially. There's no audience active in the artist's studio when the tiger is drawn, and there's no immortality for the successful beholder. All this is obvious. So in what way could the myth be true? In what sense did the reporter co-create the tiger? And he's talking about this kind of epigram, but in what sense did the person who was the beholder co-create the thing? And he's really saying that, like, that's not true when you're making a painting or writing a book or whatever, but when you're playing Deadline, that is true. Yes. Great. Sounds yes. good. Right. It's just, I mean, it's a, it's another version of his, like, these things that artists and art theorists tend to say about art are literally true for cyber texts in a way that they are actually not true for older texts or, or the older pieces of media. Yep. Um which okay sure uh yeah sounds good all right that's literally the end of the book that's that's literally how it ends yeah all right michael how'd you how'd you how'd you find it um well god how long have we been talking well, we've been talking for three to... hours yeah three <laughs> hours um this book as i've already said this book comes for me it comes at me <laughs> uh-huh. um in a very very weird way and at the same time it is coming at me in a good like i'm trying to think of a really good like thing from popular culture to point at but honestly it's just like a weird social thing that i've had where sometimes you meet a person who is always kind of like passive aggressive Right, but in a way where you're not quite sure, are, are they being passive-aggressive because they hate me, or because they're in a bad mood, or because this is just how they get through life? Um, you know, someone who will, like, they won't say anything, like, outright mean to you, but they'll be like, oh man, those are some, uh, like, cool, that's a cool shirt, did you get that at Sears? <laughs> right like something this like is such like, a very specific midwestern thing you're doing right now it is it is right but like this this is like a i i yeah maybe maybe arseth and i are having some sort of like weird uh cross uh cultural moment here mm-hmm. um but that's sort of what it feels like right is reading this book that is it's like coming at me and it does like and it's always swiping pretty hard but it's never swiping at me personally hard it's swiping at these other thinkers and I think this is part of the rhetorical ploy of of the the thing broadly writ um, is that if he hits the right one, then suddenly I'm on his side. But it's just weird because it seems like no one is on Arseth's side. Uh, mm. And as someone who is interested in a lot of the problems that are being put forth here and in fact thinks that there is um, a lot of application for a lot of these ideas outside of uh necessarily like computational literature or whatever like to, to historicize these ideas um even further which is obviously like where my thoughts on this are, are tending um i really like that and at the same time like the book just seems so disdainful of me it's so weird yeah i think i think the book has a tone problem for sure across the board um i also think that as a book that is trying to do analysis if this to put it a different way, if this book were written in a generous way, it would be, I would find it a lot better. But mm-hmm. because of its kind of weird tone of, of saying this thing, not this other thing, this is good, this is bad, um, 
it ends up drawing lines in places that I just don't know if it's productive to draw a line there. And again, I'm not even critical of the idea of doing that. I think that's a great thing to do. I, you know, obviously this book works in the sense that it causes a, it troubles everyone. And so everyone either needs to defend it or show exactly why it, it doesn't work for them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so distinction in the field of production is perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. But it is the way that it draws those lines and then, like, politicizes without politicizing or without mm -hmm. calling it politics, those lines, and then suggests that, like, if you didn't get to this conclusion that he's gotten to, that you might just not know what you're talking about. Um, all of those kinds of things, it's, it, you know, there's not a better way to express it other than tone I, mm -hmm. for me, right? The, the, the tone in which it is written is, it is not one in which I would write a book. I'll say mm -hmm. that, right? It is not a generous book. Um, and I, I think that people often put a lot of... At, they lay it at the feet of Arseth. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like Escalinen's work that is pretty purposely exclusionary. Some mm -hmm. things are games, some things are not games. Um, mm -hmm. And then adds a poli an explicit politics to that. They are not games and calling them that is bad. Um, you can read basically any Escalinen piece you want to in order to get there. Um, I think it's hard to get to his writing without passing through cybertext as like a validating mm -hmm. thing. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's hard to... It's a hard pill to swallow. I think this door opens... Uh, this book opens up a bunch of doors to modes of argumentation that I just don't find productive. Whether mm -hmm. I like them or not is beside the point. I don't think they're generative right. and I don't think they help the field in any way. And actually, so to, to touch on something from last episode, I was, again, trying to imagine what would what would this book look like if Game Studies uh, got founded with CLR James yeah. and Beyond a Boundary? Um, and I don't really know what that would look like. I mean, I it, that's just a purely speculative question. But I think it is helpful because it illustrates, I think, why why this book is a consequence of Huizinga. Now, Huizinga isn't mentioned here, uh, but because uh, Homo Ludens is so weirdly encompassing, like everything gets eaten up by the idea of play, um, that in some ways I feel like cybertext becomes the, the opposite but equal reaction where it's like, no, we need to put boundaries on what these things are if we're ever going to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, Yes, absolutely. The word play does not show up very often in this book as, like, its own distinct no. thing. No. Um, no, this is very much trying to get beyond uh, these these weird, like, phenomenological things toward, like, the other, the other method that is happening, or the other pull in this book is really an attempt to devise a meta-language. A hundred percent. Um, right. And the, you know, I, I guess I have two things to say about the James part uh, or, or about that in general. So the first thing would be that um, if CLR James founds game studies, you know, in our in our alternate universe, yeah. CLR James uh, founds game studies, then it is already a pre-given conclusion that games are literary by their very function, right? So remember yep. in Beyond a Boundary when he kind of draws a connection between Cricket and Moby Dick and that his mode of criticism is the same for both. And so it means you don't have to do all this work to like produce literariness of games and you don't have to look to specific game types. Um, you know, we didn't talk about it, but earlier in this book, he kind of talks about how football is one dimensional, 
that it like mm. doesn't have narrative content to it. Yeah, it's purely kind of, ergodic or whatever. Yeah, it's purely ergodic, which is just like I, we don't have enough time for me to get into all the ways that I think that is wrong, just on a mm-hmm. fundamental level. Um, for who, right? Like who plays football? If we want right. to really get into it, who is playing football, and what is the experience of play? Anyway, point being. Um, so that's one thing, right? That the supposed lines that are being crossed and the boundaries that are being drawn here, CLR James is already beyond that boundary. <laughs> um, the other thing is that cultural studies does not show up in this book at all. Nope. Period. Um, and lo and behold, um, a whole field of study that's about objects and the kind of effects they have on the world and the navigation of the line between the kind of um, solidity of that object and then what we find out is the porousness of it, right? How, how people's feelings about that object influence it and then how the object's material qualities influence those opinions. Um, that is, in fact, an entire field of study that has a 30-year history, a robust 30-year history before this book comes out, and it does not show up at all. You know, you know, and I wouldn't even say that, like, Edward Said shows up very briefly in, in an epigram for one of the last couple chapters. I wouldn't even say that Said is a cultural studies person, even though he's in that position. But his form of argument isn't responded to in this book either about the um, cultural expectations that are buried within objects and how mm-hmm. they determine our positionality to them. So, for example, how you feel about deadline and how you interact with deadline is a culturally specific form, whereas Arseth has no even ability to think about that, right? For him, Mm -hmm. everyone agnostic, you know, agnostic of where you come from, as long as you can read English, basically, you are going to have the same general experience of deadline. I'm not necessarily sure that many, many other fields of study would think that's true. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my two kind of you know, general big methodological quibbles here that Mm -hmm. in the race to create a method that, that fully speaks to digital games and ergodic literature in a general sense, he has zoomed past all the other boundary drawing mechanisms that many, many other fields have adopted in order to talk about cultural objects in a general sense. And I don't think that helps this book. I think that hurts this book. And I think that anyone, you know, if you're a student or you're a graduate student and you're listening to this and you're thinking about working through this book, which I encourage you to, I don't think you're, it's like doing you harm to do it. I think there are lots of good places to anchor great arguments in this book. And I think there are smart arguments in this book. But I think if you are trying to, to use this book in a way that keep that keeps to its ideology of kind of singularity versus a networked ideology of how games are in communication with the rest of the world and the culture that produces it, you are not doing a sufficient enough job at Mm -hmm. analyzing the game. Yep. No, I would say like, if, if you're a person who is like me, listener, uh, if you are a sort of literary-minded or English-lit-minded person, or any sort of wordy-minded person, I guess, uh, and you're interested in games and, and narrative and digital stuff, this book is worth coming to and reading through. And like it's just worth flagging up front that a lot of what you're going to get out of this book is probably going to be kind of probably the, the result of a project of like reparation or recuperation um precisely because there are so many other sort of ways where the, the the book is argumentatively and methodologically uh blinkered i love that uh you said up front at two hours and 56 minutes into, into this 
<laughs> podcast. Yeah, uh, good. It's very funny. Well, no, I mean, that's I was being upfront about, like, you know, what what for the future reader of this book, right? Oh, what yeah, is it yeah. that you need to have in mind as you go forward? With my final little, like, my final little recommendation of of Cybertext, which again, like, I got like we talked about this for three hours uh because that's my problem because i got really excited about this book in all of the places where i want to push back on it <laughs> yeah and so the lesson you should learn here is to write a controversial book that makes people angry <laughs> yes <laughs> so they can they can point by point page by page walk through your book no don't on do a podcast that. on a podcast no don't do that and it, it, I, you know i wouldn't say the book made me angry um i would say that it just for every claim that i was like oh yeah okay Okay, interesting. There were two claims there. I was like, I don't know. I'm not mm -hmm. sure about this. I'm not sure that the boundary you've drawn is productive. Um, you know, similar to the way that, that we read Hamlet on the holodeck too, right? Like I, I was nodding my head through a lot of that book. And there are some claims in that book where I just cannot, I can't even get to the headspace where I think that, that that's something that I agree with or can even debate with to some degree, which is not to say they're good and bad books. It's just to say that these are, statements from a particular time and space that's very hard for me in 2019 to to relate to or even agree with on the claim level of like mm -hmm. uh, of i agree that this is a valid claim to be making it's not not a criticism not even a criticism just statements about these things all right well i suppose that kind of ties things up for this episode uh what are we reading next cameron so the next book is the play of the world by james hans Yes, James S. Hans, 1981. This is yet more of my project of getting weird books that people don't care about in game studies into game studies. Yeah. Um, I have a great story about this book <laughs> to, uh, to, to tell you about when, uh, when we get to that episode. But yeah, this book is not in print. Um, mm -hmm. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. Uh, to buy a paperback is $869. And there are a few used copies for like 15 bucks in hardcover. Mm -hmm. This book is not in print. I, it's going to be hard to get a, get a hold of. Yeah, I had uh, I have never heard of it, so it'll be exciting. Oh, it's dope. Okay, this guy's this guy's reading uh, a thousand plateaus in French before it comes out in the United States. Uh, oh my gosh! He's in nineteen eighty one. He's doing play studies, right? So he's in that like cohort of people like uh, Speriosu and all those people. They're editing stuff. I have like bought a lot of single journal issues from the eighties to like mm -hmm. fill out my, my knowledge here. Anyway, you can tell I'm a big nerd about it. <laughs> um, so I think we'll have a good discussion of it, but it might be hard for people to get, um, get a hold of. So maybe just wait and listen to us talk about it. And then you can decide if you need to purchase the book. Yep. All right. Well, until next time we are the game studies study buddies. And we would like to remind you that the social is predicated upon its exclusions. Goodbye. Bye.